goodbye to the PlayStation Plus collection. And the death of games as a service? Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Squared. I am your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me this week, after a week of vacation, we don't really take those very often, uh, is one Chris Figs. Chris, how are you doing? I'm good, Brett. How are you? I'm doing well. In light of our vacation, I've decided to finally lay to rest the bruised canoe, the bruised uh, canoeer. I've decided that you've you lost enough weight ooh. last week. Um, yeah, I did. Due to your circumstance, uh, that you know what, it was time that you got a break. Yeah, thank you. you. Know? Thank you. So I took that name and I flushed it down the toilet, just like all of your uh, bodily mass, as I would choose <laughs> to call it. Uh, but Thanks. first and foremost, guys, you may have noticed we didn't have an episode last week. That was for two reasons, realistically. Initially, Chris was quite sick. He had a stomach bug and he was worried about recording. And we had landed on recording anyway. And then I got home and my wife was sick. And it kind of just felt like divine intervention <laughs> where it was like, well, at some point, if Chris is sick and my wife's sick, maybe we just need to not make an episode because there may be some, uh, you know, mysticism, some bad mysticism yeah. around that. So we've taken a break off, coming back. And I got to give a shout out to my lovely, wonderful wife. It is Valentine's Day and we are recording. But considering what happened last week and the fact that we spent a lot of time this weekend together so that we wouldn't have to try and get out into the hustle bustle of it, uh, she is graciously not having any problem with me recording this on valentine's day so hey you know what i know you don't listen to the show baby but i love you um chris yes hi this is going to be an episode where we talk about a number of things uh for the first time really in a long time if maybe even ever we're going to look at some criticism that was uh, thrown our way from our last episode uh, as well as getting into some things like how many games as a service games tend or seem at least currently to be kind of falling off the edge and ask the question, is there a reasonable end date for live as a service, uh, live service games, or should games as a service be looking at potentially market flooding that has led to a point where a lot of them are going to have to start closing. So we'll talk about that. PlayStation is finally getting rid of the PS plus collection Apex has some changes, and we're going to talk a little bit about Alan Wake, too. But we are going to start this show off the way that we always do. So if you're new, stick with us. We hope you enjoy what you hear. But we always start off with a very clean, simple, just like Yutada Hikaru. And we try and figure out what we've been playing. Get an update on that so you guys know what we've been playing. See if anything catches your eyes. Or just in general, what we may have liked that each other are playing. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you as always. One thing that I uh, noticed wasn't on your list, but you were sneakily playing there, was one Power Wash Simulator. <laughs> so is that yes. a very new addition? Yeah, um, I, I picked it up today. I was like, screw it. Um, so I was just playing a little bit, taking a break from Hogwarts. It's weird because I need to take a break from Hogwarts and I want to play Dead Space, but I feel like I have to do... Dead Space, like in a row. I've already taken one I break from it. Understand you know? that one, actually. Yeah. So it's it's been hard for me to go back to, but uh, mostly, yeah. So some Power Wash Simulator, a um, little bit of Apex. I got back on that. Um, Hogwarts Legacy is the big one. Um, it's been two weeks, so there's been a bunch of games for me. So Medal of Honor <laughs> Frontlines was one. 
But then one that I did really enjoy was me and some of my friends downloaded and played First Class Trouble. So I don't know if you remember that game, but was that the uh, was that the one that was kind of like a Among Us style game? Yes, exactly. And it was a free PS Plus title, was it not? Yes. Yes, I do remember this. I never played it, but I remember seeing it, and it looked interesting. It's hmm. it's janky and not the best built game, but we were having a lot of fun just doing stuff like making the character ragdoll by hitting him with a champagne bottle. Like It was really cool. And then everyone was in voice chat, so people were playing. It was nice because the audience for that game is very small now i'm imagining so we were like matching up with like the same people over and over again it was kind of neat what i love about really anything but it happens a lot in video games but i love about creative endeavors is when people who have created something throw something out there and people find fun that was never intended by the designers yeah and how that can play in. Because there are games that I have absolutely adored for reasons that I know were not accounted for. No one thought and designed this element, but for some reason your dumb brain gets hooked on this one little aspect and that becomes the whole point of the game. Like, I, I seriously doubt that the person who in Just Cause 2 decided to add the little tether rope thought that everyone was just going to spend 18 hours playing nothing but figuring out what you can tether to and how you can do it. But that is the only reason I even like Just Cause 2. Yeah. Just cause two I, otherwise, awesome. I think that game is honestly terrible, but I've played <laughs> countless hours of it with only the fun of seeing what I can tether to and what kind of crazy events I can have happen. And then I've also had my fun watching other people do the same. You know, like, well, okay, we're going to tether a bunch of wooden reindeers together and we're going to put rockets on them. And we're going to shoot the rockets and let them shoot off and pull this ghetto sleigh. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, yeah, it's. I don't know that I recommend anyone play it, but we had a great time. So, like, so you do battle. I I don't know because, like I said, it's it's janky, and we didn't know what we were doing half the time. <clears throat> it was literally like us in the lobby. Like people were yelling at us, and we were like, "We've never played this before." And I feel like they were kind of like, "We need more players. Let's help them." <laughs> so people were being very generous yeah. with their time, <laughs> teaching us how to play. Made some friends. <clears throat> there you go it's rare in these days that you make your um, online friend you know that you yes. meet entirely through one I say it's rare I don't think I put myself in those types of games very often anymore but I feel like the um, prevalence of party chat gets you out of in-game chat and people are so quick to want to join a party of people they know and that yeah. means they're less likely to interact with other people and I think game designers knew that because you know like Sea of Thieves and other games where even when you're in a party, they'll have proximity chat where if someone gets close to you, their party voice stuff bleeds over into your game. Uh, I think that that's a really interesting workaround because you can still have the comfort of starting with people that you're familiar with and kind of isolating it down to that. But the game can create crazy moments by suddenly make you hear things and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> is yeah. this friend or foe? And it's, it's fun in a different way. Yeah. Exactly. But we did enjoy that, so. All right. Well, uh, I've been on Dead Space yeah. uh, almost exclusively. Actually, exclusively since I've started it. Um, man, Dead Space is a classic game. It, it is. is. There, there's two things that I think are really worth mentioning. First of all, that Dead Space is a 
timeless game, genuinely speaking. It's a game that is still just as good, and I I feel absolutely positive that I can completely stop playing the one that I'm playing right now, Take my go to my PS3, play Dead Space on PS3, the 2008 release, and still have a blast. I know that without a doubt in my mind. Is it great to do it with, you know, completely seamless ship and no load windows and modern flair and graphics? Absolutely. But it's a timeless game. Um, but second of all, man, that game has really highlighted the problem that I think we are currently facing in AAA gaming. I beat Dead Space. I'm just for... So I, I did my first run through and I did a one gun run through for the trophies, right? So I only nice. use Plasma Cutter. Uh, right now, I'm about three quarters of the way through my New Game Plus playthrough and slash cleanup for everything else that I didn't do, um, like kills with the other weapons. I had collected enough of the uh, collectibles in the first playthrough naturally that I got that trophy. Um, so I took about 12, 13 hours to beat Dead Space uh, with a lot of exploration. Uh-huh. And it's perfect. I every game cannot be the same, and I understand that. But I'm really pushing for what Jim, uh, not Jim Ryan, but rather Sean Layton Sean was Layton. talking about, where I really think that there is a need to scale games back. And one of the ways to combat games getting so big and so bloated with their budget is to start working on making really interesting, fun, and compelling. 12 to 15 hour games again because I think Dead Space has nearly every aspect of a modern open game and where this is a Bloodborne style map, definitely now that it's seamless where you can just constantly see how the map folds back in on itself and I think that it's very rewarding for um, exploration. I think that the story is a lot more concise and it still has room for side missions and side stories that you can go find out. Like if you want to find out the origins of the hunter, bam, you can go knock that out. If you want to try and make your master override key card, bam, you can go knock that out. It's fun, but everything is within a scope of it where you constantly feel like you're on the main quest without being yanked around. And I think two upsides can come from that. Games will start to feel less homogenous because they'll be shorter and longer games. And then I think times where we do get very long games, we'll have that Witcher 3 cyberpunk feeling again or a Skyrim feeling where it's like, this is different. This is special. And then because that game is so big and will cost more to make, it will likely have a longer lifespan. It'll be loved and wanted to be played for a long time. So it'll be able to make up that difference like they always kind of did. Um, I think that there's a lot of benefit of games going back to that. And I've been very much doubting my opinion on AAA games. <laughs> I think God of War Ragnarok would have been a, this is going to be hurtful for some people, but I can, in my mind, imagine a very concise and much more compelling 15 hour God of War Ragnarok. And God of War Ragnarok wasn't even that long. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but, as far you know. As I know. So and it's it's weird. I, and I I use God of War Ragnarok specifically because it's not trying to be an open world game, right? I think it's a better one to aim at. Uh, I think trying to say like a fifteen hour Horizon that doesn't really work with what Horizon is. Horizon is a big open world game, and that's fine. So those games should have the expectation and the lead in that they have large big worlds that take you a long time to beat. Conversely, you have games like Cyberpunk that 
exist in that same idea, but still have a main campaign that's, you know, seven to 12 hours, depending on how quickly you want to move through it. Right. Uh, but I, I really, I would like to see that, even if it was just for a while. My bigger curiosity is how much did Dead Space cost? How much did they expect it to sell? And how reasonable would it be for new titles to do that? Uh, basically, would my preference actually be better for the industry from a monetary standpoint? Or would my preference not line up enough with other players, uh, which is always a possibility. So, Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think it's been for me, one thing I found with Hogwarts Legacy is I think the best thing I did for that game was not play open world games for a while. Like that hasn't been my forte. So I think not having open world fatigue has made some of the stuff that maybe if I had gone through Horizon, I wouldn't want to do in Hogwarts like a lot easier. So I get what you're saying. Like the big bloated might be the wrong word, but big games like that are definitely you, you could definitely use some filler in between. It helps. Yeah, I mean, filler might be the wrong word, but I get in spirit what you mean. And I think it's exactly it. Um Part of the reason I'm not rushing into Hogwarts and why I'm instead running for Platinum on Dead Space is that Dead Space not being a sprawling open world and me playing that same thing over and over again and just getting really into the gameplay aspect of that. Um, I think that will really help when it comes time because I just got off of Forspoken, the other game that I played. Uh, I Platinum that. Uh, and one thing, so we haven't talked about it because of the, the two-week gap. Forspoken is a good game, in my opinion. I mean, you know, I'll, even the score that it sits at doesn't imply it's a bad game. Just to, you know, going back to our conversation there, a 65 is still an above average game. Um, so, but with that in mind, I was really feeling like that game was more of like a seven and a half or maybe even a seven. And then I've kind of landed on it being more of like a six and a half or a six based entirely on the end. The end of that game was this crazy rushed. And you can kind of tell that it feels disjointed. Like the game keeps picking you up and putting you down in other places and trying to continue this thread. And things just feel a little janky because it felt like they had to hit a deadline. So they just made the ending events happen with no smooth way to go between it all. And that leads to a very abrupt feeling ending. And the entire ending playthrough up until the big final battle just kind of feels like, well, you're just throwing me around and not in a way that feels like it's purposeful to evoke an emotion from you, but just a, oh, I didn't have enough time. <laughs> and I think that that all bleeds into some of the open world stuff because some parts of the games literally use the exact same cutscene and dialogue multiple times as part of it. It's like you have to dance with this guy in the in the world three times and then every time you have to do more button presses and eventually you get a trophy tied to it. But every single dance is the exact same dialogue and the exact same visuals all the way through in the exact same environment. The only thing that's different is what you press as part of the dance. And it's just kind of weird. You can tell like they had to rush through those things. And every time that you find one of the challenge monuments that you have to do monuments of wisdom, you've, you found like 20 of these. There's a trophy for doing 20 of them. And even on the 19th one, Frey walks up to it and it's like, what the hell is this? And Cuff's like, I don't know, but be careful. And it's like, bro, you've done 19 of these. How do you not know? How do you not know? 
But I still enjoyed my time with it a lot, and it was a fun platinum. It goes to show you that fun moment to moment to game, uh, moment to moment gameplay can really make up for other problems because the world is empty, even though the lore accounts for it. Doesn't mean it's fun, but moving right. across the world is super fun. So it's like. As long as it's fun in between the battle and then the combat's fun enough to justify stopping the movement to do that, you got a good recipe right there. So I enjoyed it. But Dead Space is a huge needed break before I go into a game like Hogwarts after Forspoken. Yeah. Well, and that's what I meant by filler is like Dead Space is a really good separation between two open world games. (laughs) Yeah. Stuff like Let's Build a Zoo was great for me, you know. Well, yeah, and that's why I think Dead Space is a Dead Space is a closer um, or a, a further break, I should say, than something like God of War. And a lot of these single player games are still getting to a point where they're trying to be faux open world. And I think the only downside to that is that they get to act less like filler because instead of them being like a really fun twelve hours, it's like oh, we're still going to be thirty. 40 hours and I am platinuming uh, platinuming them. That's not fair to completely put everything on there. So Mm -hmm. like by the time I'm done platinuming dead space, I'm probably going to have played like 30 hours of dead space, 25 hours of dead space. But the moment to moment gameplay is still different. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Oh man. Um, So have you gotten a complete run through dead space or have you just kind of started? No, I stopped around chapter four. Man, I cannot wait to talk to you and Blake, uh, considering mm-hmm. our spoiler chats that we did for Callisto Protocol. I Now that I've played this and I have that Dead Space memory fresh in my head and I can see where they clearly tried to, for lack of a better word, ape Dead Space, I feel like there's no way Callisto wasn't just rust out. I, there's no way that that was the final product they always intended to make. And I say that because playing Dead Space just goes to show comparatively how void of anything Callisto feels in comparison to Dead Space. It's kind of wild. Dead Space has infinitely more interesting guns, a far wider variety of guns, a far wider variety of upgrades that actually change the guns in interesting ways. It's got more interesting use of its actual kinetic, uh, you know, being able to pick things up, puzzle solving that comes with those things. Every, literally every issue that Callisto has, Dead Space has the answer for. Uh, And if the only reason for that is that EA was smart enough to come in and be like, hey, we still have to have some game stuff in here, then that's amazing. And bravo to EA. I don't think that that's actually what it was. I think that Visceral was just a interesting team of good people to work alongside Glenn and bounce ideas off of. Well, from what I remember, I could be totally making this up, but I feel like the um, R3 for the light line, that was specifically an EA thing. Oh, I completely under, I would be surprised if it wasn't because not that it's hard, but that screams to me like, Hey, Oh, and think about this way. Uh, Black iron prison or whatever it was called in Callisto. What was your real motivation to re-navigate it? There wasn't any. Maybe you missed collectible. Exactly. What is your motivation for re-navigating Dead Space? It's fun. (laughs) It's fun. The game makes sure because 
Velvet asked this, and I'm curious your answer too. And originally I was a little hesitant, but now that I've played through it again, I 100% consider Dead Space a Metroidvania. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. You got to go back and open up chests with your... You go back areas, you find things that you couldn't get into before that may have something for you to upgrade a certain way or to see something else story-related that you didn't see before. The world is far more lore-interesting. And so, because it actually tries to dig in uh, to all of its things. So, like, there's this scratching of the surface of something interesting and neat and mysterious about uh, the Callisto protocol, but you only literally get that little scratch at the very end of the game and you have everything about dead space and the marker and what it means and everything built around it, the religion around it and who believes it and what that means. The game unwraps that throughout the entire game for you. And it makes the mystery far more compelling. It's just very interesting to play these two games and be able to compare them. Um, it's 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 very interesting. It is. I'm curious to see how well Dead Space does, and if this means that they will move into remaking Dead Space Two, kind of like Capcom did by moving into Resident Evil Three and Four. It would make a what? ton of sense, or just like a new second chapter, basically. Yeah, I don't know. It's got to do the eye thing again. <laughs> I think I think you remake Two as is. It's a great game, and oh, then I agree. Three is the one that you make sure you. You really make changes too, right? Yeah. Maybe the only thing a there is: player game. does EA have to? Does EA making a third one that they changed drastically prove that all along EA was wrong <laughs> for meddling? <laughs> mm, who that's knows? definitely a good argument. We will see, but you know what, Chris? I have a question that comes from one of our listeners, Yuna, that I think. You will have a very interesting answer for. I would definitely be glad to hear it. But I ha- the reason I say interesting is it may line up specifically with Yuna's. I'd be curious to hear. Uh, Yuna says, hey there, guys. What has been a game, series, or just standalone that once you had that perfect playthrough, you thought it was going to be hard to replay again? And Chris, you know you and I have talked a lot about TV shows that kind of hit that point where yeah. it feels like rewatching Breaking Bad kind of felt like a, do I do it? Do I run the risk? So do you have a video game that scratches, you know, that goes and touches on that kind of ideology? Um, I think my answers would be Journey and Walking Dead Season 1. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Journey is a, more of an interesting one because you kind of landed on what I was going to say for mine is those types of games tend to be ones where you make a lot of decisions that impact the game. And then the game continues to build around because Mm -hmm. it makes it hard to want to replay because you feel like you affected that. And that was the story that you guys hold and replaying it feels like you'd be playing something that was different, which is the allure for some people, but for other people you want to have that, like that was my story. Yeah. Exactly. That was my playthrough. And I wasn't going to collect all the scarves or whatever. So it wasn't a, it's just that this is a perfect one time game. That was it. Yeah. Journey is an interesting one, though, because I think it's more akin to Breaking Bad, where it's, where it's more like the emotional feeling of a game that will be the exact same when you play it. The game doesn't change at all, but your experience can never be 
virgin, for lack of a better word again. You can't go into it not knowing what you're going to get. Right. And so that wow factor can never be there. No, exactly. And I've I've never replayed Journey either. I don't even know why you would. It's like you you play Journey, you have an experience with it, and that experience yeah. lives on in your heart forever. Yep. And it's like all the people that I played with, like I had that experience with them and I can never have that experience with them again. You know, there's a lot of factors that make it like the one time playthrough was perfect and and more than enough for me. Hmm. Well, I know that Yuna's game was that they just got through running through all three Mass Effect games. And I know that the Mass Effect games had that, uh, you know, their, their shtick was you create a Commander Shepard and then you move through all three games with this one Commander Shepard and you have this arc of your decisions that you've made within this framework. And they were saying that that would be a game that would be very hard for them to replay. Do you feel like you know, you're a big, you're a huge Mass Effect fan? And I know you did recently replay them. Yeah. But one caveat that always existed for PlayStation users is unless you ended up buying the Mass Effect 1 PS3 version they came out with right before PS4 came out, mm-hmm. you highly likely didn't play Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 with the, the same Commander Shepard because you couldn't. So, but now you could. Well, that. I think Mass Effect is a good pick. It wouldn't be for me because I've done it twice. And actually, my first playthrough was on the Xbox series of consoles. So I did have that full experience. Um, mm-hmm. So Mass Effect Mass Effect's a great answer. Like this time, I couldn't see myself doing it again. Not for a long time, right? Because uh, I've done it recently and honestly there's no trophies to go back for so like i've done there's no like reason for me to see it through again for the second time especially all three games you could see me i could see myself picking up mass effect 2 and playing through that one more time like a renegade playthrough or something but um mass effect is a great answer i love that series i love the the games um and i could see if i had i could see this playthrough being my like that was my definitive shepherd you know what i mean yeah yeah I think the game that I felt this way and then have really stuck to my guns and not gone back to play, and I've seriously debated it, and I might, but so far, my original playthrough of Heavy Rain, after I got done, that was like a big moment in gaming for me because I hadn't played anything quite like that where you made all these decisions and it really impacted the game, and I felt like I can't play this again. I know that there are other ways for certain people to stay alive or to die or certain events to change, but I can't bring myself to do it because I've played through this and this is my story. But there's also a second reason. Yeah. For the only time in my life, Chris, I don't think I've told you this story. I might have. Um, but for anyone newer in the podcast, my wife got me those games. Uh, she got me Red Dead 1, Until Dawn, and a third game that I'm blanking on. right? No, not Until Dawn. Um, Heavy Rain. And a third game I'm blanking on. Medal of Honor. Nice. That's what it was. The Medal of Honor PS3 uh, reboot that did. I got those three games from a buy two, get one free um, for our anniversary. Uh, she went and just took me to the store and was like, get whatever you want. And I was playing. I was so hooked on Heavy Rain that I was playing into the night. And I, it was like 3 a.m. and I was still playing. And I was so tired. And I was sitting on the floor leaning against my bed. And I fell asleep. And I woke up in the middle of it and thought, oh, I need to put turn this off and go to bed. And quickly I hit save. And then while it was saving, I hit the PS button and turned my system off. Didn't think anything of it. 
went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and my save was corrupted because I turned it off in the middle of saving. Oh. And I had to, and I was about three quarters of the way through the game, and I had to restart all the way back. And I tried, and I, I did. I made sure I made zero different decisions. <laughs> I thought back to everything in the game. Like, I did this, and I, I let that happen, and I did this because I didn't want it to change. So I think that those two reasons together make that kind of a perfect answer. But I almost felt the same about um, Detroit Become Human, but I decided to go for Platinum and let the curiosity of what else could happen hit me. Yeah, But I know that's one of them. That's a that was a those types of games where you're making these crazy decisions are easily it. But I like the idea of Mass Effect. I can't really think of another game that quite did that Mass Effect idea of where you're moving your same character through to different games. Did you ever is there another game on that you can think of that did that? No. I mean I think m- maybe The Witcher 3 on PC had that like if you had a Witcher 2 save cuz I know you can simulate a save. Yeah, so, I know you. That and might I be had the only to simulate a save because I played on PS4. Right, me too. And I played Witcher 2 on PC. That's a good question. I think, well, even then, though, does it actually affect your Geralt? Or is it more just uh, we're going to make little nods that kind of reference that? Are the games going to give you something to reference the fact that you played one of the previous ones? Like Infamous 2 did that. Like if you had an Infamous 1 save on your system, it would give you something extra i mean the, th- the sad thing is like i don't know because i don't recall i never finished it <laughs> so i didn't play a lot of the witcher 3 so there's not a ton for me to i don't i don't know yeah i simulated my save but i can't remember anything that ever seemed to go directly to that either way cool idea good question thanks you and appreciate it i guess time to go into criticism corner which is mostly aimed at chris so I want to let Chris be able to just respond and uh, be able to defend is probably the wrong word, but give his side of how he feels about these. Uh, so one thing that Chris brought up and I think is a good point is we really, every now and then we get things wrong. We're two people doing a fan made podcast and um, sometimes we'll say things that are wrong. Sometimes we'll say things that people just disagree with. And sometimes we get pushed back on them and sometimes we don't. But since we got two pretty uh, pointed points of, of feedback or pushback against our opinion or more specifically Chris's opinion last week when we were talking about whether or not too much horizon um, was happening. And that was kind of a simplified version for the thumbnail, right? But I think the real question there was, a mix between is there too much horizon? And then secondarily, I think the bigger question that was within that was, is horizon a big enough franchise to support um, this many titles this quickly when we compare it to things that have been ongoing for a long time and then went out. So with that in mind, we got two comments that we're going to, I'll read off and then I'm going to let Chris respond to them how he sees fit. Uh, so big box over on our big box. I don't know which one it is. Uh, sorry, but it, it, over on YouTube, he says, Brett, you should have pushed Chris more on the horizon multiplayer talk. God of war Ascension came out in 2013. God of war 2018 
came out in 2018. Of course, that's the same time delta as Zero Dawn to Forbidden West. Very few people are going to play Call of the Mountain because it's tied to PSVR 2 and multiplayer games historically don't care about IP. I think gamers rather historically don't care about IP in the same way that single player gamers do. Chris, I love you, man, but you've got to have a stronger argument than basically I don't want them, so therefore it's too much. And then secondarily, kind of in the same vein, Kurt Burns over on Twitter reached out and said, how? There are 200 Mario games across multiple genres from 2D platformers, 3D RPG, sports, racing, fighting, rabbits crossover, etc. You can't criticize Horizon and say too much when people lap up everything the Mario name is attached to. Chris is just anti-Horizon. So Chris... I did respond to the tweet and I said, I don't think Chris would even argue with your classification of him being anti-Horizon because you have not made it a secret that the Horizon series has never particularly struck you in any way that you've really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. The floor is yours. Feel free to respond how you see fit to these criticisms. I guess I would respond to the, the second one first about Mario um, and I don't know. I think it's you can't compare Horizon to Mario. Like Mario is, you know, synonymous with Nintendo in a way that no game except maybe Grand Theft Auto with Rockstar and Call of Duty with Activision is right. It's not. I don't know. I just I don't think that the Mario series being a staple of things. And then I would argue that these games don't sell well either. You know, like I know their basketball game sold like one million copies. Like that's not bad, but that's not Mario numbers. You know, it's not Mario Odyssey numbers. So to make sure I'm understanding your point, your your argument against Mario in particular is that even if his argument may work if you transplant it to a different series that's not as big and synonymous as Mario, then maybe there's a fair argument there. But using Mario is a really hard starting point because Mario is a synonymous, huge part of Nintendo that's been gone going for over 30 years and that they don't necessarily sell well in comparison to the mainline Mario games that sell comparatively way more. Is yeah, that I mean, more or less your argument? Yeah, I think in a simplified version of it, my argument would be like comparing Horizon to Mario would be would be like comparing The Godfather to, you know, I don't know, some mediocre movie. Olympus has fallen. You know what I mean? Both good, <laughs> but it's it's hard to really talk about anything in the same breath as the godfather and that's why it's hard to talk about anything with mario in the same breath mario is more than video more than super mario brothers right at this point mario is a mascot i would argue that without smash a lot of these games look maybe a little weirder i think the way that nintendo has set up their properties that they can do weird stuff with them helps but i don't know i don't think that I think if if we were looking at this in terms of another franchise, if this was, oh, now I'm getting Hogwarts Legacy, Hogwarts Legacy Quidditch, Quidditch game, 
Hogwarts season one. You know, if we were getting five Hogwarts legacy games, I would also argue that's too much. And even then, I think that franchise supports it better than Horizon. Horizon is still a new thing. This is like, to bring it to another medium, it's just like when DC decided to do Justice League first instead of looking at the the MCU and how Marvel built their stuff and built up to that point, right? You can build up to this point, uh, but I think you have Horizon 1, you have Forbidden West, and now you have Horizon Zero Dawn Remake, Horizon Multiplayer, Horizon Call of the Mountain, Horizon MMO. I I, th- I think that's too much, and I don't know that that's an unreasonable point. Um, I think it's funny because a lot of people are calling me anti-Horizon, and I think it's the same if I was saying, well, you want all these games because you're not anti-Horizon, right? And I'm not anti-Horizon. I think that's a mischaracterization of how I feel about the franchise. <laughs> like, I I like Zero Dawn. <laughs> really, all I'm saying is you're not, a, you're not an advocate necessarily of Horizon because the series is about half and half for you at this point. Yeah. You don't have any strong connection one way or the other. And that doesn't make it's just you don't have to be anti horizon to also not be pro horizon. Like horizon is just an IP that you are. And and I think that's part of it. I don't know that we communicated well enough that what we were implying was that I, I think it was there, but it was in the subtext more than it was overtly said that we are definitely whenever you started talking, because for me personally, right, when I was looking at it, you remember during the episode i stopped and kind of changed my own opinion in the middle Mm -hmm. of it because initially i was thinking maybe it is too much and this series is not there yet and then when i went back and looked at sales between the two games i mean those two games have sold more than some series have that have been around for two decades uh by far so while it still seems like a quick thing if you're telling me you've sold you know 30 million copies of uh, of a new IP in two games in five years, maybe that IP is big enough to take a risk with. Mm-hmm. And so I did change my tune. But that was the thing is initially you look at it and uh, my, my buddy Donovan reached out and he said he agreed with you just so we have kind of an opposing opinion. And he was saying he didn't feel like it was a big enough IP to carry these ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same basic principle. I know that he's also not a huge Horizon fan, and he even mentioned he thinks that God of War, that that little God of War game I kind of mentioned as, a, well, they could just do it over there. I, I don't want to speak and put any words in his mouth, but I think I can kind of understand that God of War is a franchise that is <laughs> sold well over 50 million copies at this particular point, I have to imagine, uh, even if a lot of those did come from the last two games. But it's been around for a long time, and I think it's more culturally um, important than Horizon is outside of gaming. So going back to your thing about Mario, right, is that the hardest part about referencing Mario or even Sonic in something like this is that they are cultural phenomena that exist outside of gaming in a large capacity. And they exist in the minds of non 
gamers in a very different way. You know, if you walk through a store and you said, do you know who Mario is? They'd be like, absolutely. And if you walk through a store and say, do you know who Aloy is? They'd be like, who the fuck are you talking about? Right. And then you go, do you know what Horizon is? And they would go, what are you talking about? Well, Far more often than someone would go, I have no idea what Mario is. I would you also know? make the argument more than anything if we're still comparing Mario. It's I think the Mario, Mario and its universe are mal- more malleable than Horizon is. Right, Horizon has a very specific universe and tone of that universe. Mario is a platformer, is a goofy platformer about a plumber who goes through pipes and collects gold coins. Like there's, there's a lot of space you can go with that. So yeah, I can s- understand why there's baseball games, but more than anything else, right? Let's go on to the other one because I wanted to make the point where I think, and I said this to you after when we kind of discussed this a little bit. We bring up God of War Ascension, right? And we bring mm-hmm. up how we bring up that and we bring up the delta. He said the delta between Ascension and God of War Ragn uh, God of War 2018 was 2018. the same, right? But let's talk about the 5 years or let's talk about the 5 years between God of War and Ghost of Sparta, right? There's 1 2 3 4 games in 5 years. And then Ascension comes out and I would argue did so much damage to the God of War brand in terms of not being held up to standard that they had to completely change the game and knock it out of the park to bring the franchise back. Yeah, it's it's actually a really important thing. Uh, Ascension underperformed considerably mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, but we can get into that. But I think that your point that you mentioned of, and it's a good question, but can a bad release mar a ip the only thing that i think still gives you know um big box or big box a little bit of credit is ascension to 2018 are both single player games we mm-hmm. are talking about horizon occupying a completely different my a mindset of gamers and a completely different subset in a way that Ascension didn't necessarily do. So I can understand Ascension being a mainline story driven, just like the rest of the series game performing not well enough and not. And here's the, the, the crazy thing about it, right? Is Ascension's not a bad game. Mm-hmm. It's a perfectly fine game, but it goes to show how a series that's known for knocking out of the park all the time, if they miss at all, it can have huge ramifications to the point where, to your point, Sony was very weary about whether or not they even wanted to take a chance on God of War at all. Yeah. I guess my thing more than anything else is that, while I may come off anti-Horizon for thinking this is weird, is I want to, pre- I, hope, I hope to protect that brand. My worry is sullying the brand of Horizon with mediocre stuff, which was kind of my point of, why isn't the Monster Hunter like a new IP? Why isn't the MMO a new IP? It was. It's not anti-Horizon. Uh, uh, it's more. I want Horizon to stay a powerhouse franchise. Just because it's not for me doesn't mean I don't like it, or it doesn't mean I don't want games in the series. It's more that a. I think Sony needs just more new IP. Right? New IP is never a bad thing. So take this concept, and while yes, I see how it fits into the Horizon world, wouldn't it be cooler to make a new character, make a new world, and then there you go? I mean, even in terms of what Sony does business side, 
make this monster hunter game this monster hunter game new characters give it a good story all of this stuff there's your movie there's your sony pictures tv show with netflix like i'm not saying that horizon can't do this but i do think that a a tv show a remake of the first game the first game existing forbidden west remake is real we still don't know but we still don't know but all of all of this we don't know. I can, there could be no new Horizon games for all we know, right? But it's it's that the remake, the Monster Hunter style game, the MMO, the very VR game. Now we got DLC coming. My thing is less about there's too much Horizon and more about there's too much Horizon too quickly. Mm. So it's it's less about whether or not it could even yeah like you do want it to be something else, but it's also just a general worry of. How much uh, use can an IP see? And it's going to ch- it's going to change per IP. Like you said, Mario is not serious, and yeah. as a result, you can kind of do what you want to pretty easily and reasonably. Right, it's malleable. Um, when you have a series like Horizon that is known for its realistic tones, even within a fantasy world, you know, it's trying to do the fantasy in the way where it's realistic within its own world. So you don't want to deviate too crazily from that. Uh, so with those things in mind, the question is. How, how quickly can it become an issue of fatigue of the IP rather than should the game even be made? It's should they be made this quickly? And that's a it's a question that the market has to answer, I think, is the other important. Like we can answer it as individuals, but I think the market will answer the question as to whether it's successful. Yeah. I look at it from a viewpoint of Sony. I think it's a risk. Uh, you know, you lean on IP for risk aversion. Yeah, uh, part of it's that the IP has been performing well, and you think, well, we can try this type of game, and if we do it within this IP, the money we're putting towards it has a higher chance of at least breaking even for us, so that the risk is mitigated, basically entirely, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't become the next smash success. And that's the real question: is is it worth making a game? And this is what Donovan and I were talking about: is it worth making a game where? the only reason that's really happening from a business side is we're mainly worried about making it as to whether or not we can at least break even. And then everything else is icing on the cake versus thinking that you're going to knock it out of the park. And I think that there's probably more reason to look at something and say, well, let's try and do something that's still good and original, but within an IP and an idea that we think is likely to break us even because Doing a new IP is a lot more risky. So you're right, Chris. Like it'd be more interesting as players maybe to see a new IP, but from Sony's business side, and they talk about how much games cost to make now, it is far riskier to look at this and go, let's do a new IP with this idea. And it's going to be more likely that it, if it can't carve out a niche, it won't even ever break even. And that money was just down the drain that we could have used to do something else. Yeah. And that's, uh, we talk about often, and I, I did whenever I went on the, uh, uh, me and uh, Joe from the PS Trophy Room, you know, the Trophy Room podcast, we're talking about art and business seldom jive. And consumers tend to be a little bit more on the art side like what you want to experience and what you want to see. And Sony's looking how much they can scratch that for you while still being risk averse as much as possible. And uh, I think, I think Sony's made a lot of new IP that's very high profile. So I can't blame them for not necessarily wanting to do that here when they've come out with horizon and ghost to Tsushima 
and all these other games that came out throughout the last gen um, that were new IP or very risky changes to existing IP. Uh, yeah. But with that said, Chris, if you want any final word, feel free to do so. Once you're ready, we'll move on into the community's take. No, my final word would literally just be like, I, I'm i just looking, I just want to protect the IP. You know, there's a, I think there's a good corollary to my thoughts and the way a lot of the, the public is starting to feel about comic book movies. Just too many. It's saturated. We don't want, I just didn't, I just don't think that they should do the same thing. And I think five games, maybe six in four or five years, that's, I think that's too many. Shouldn't have more games coming out than years that pass between the games. <laughs> Depending on the IP. Because we all know, because no. <laughs> to go back to his Mario thing, right? And I agree with you, right? But for the business side of things, there are probably, what, three or four Mario games a year to some some degree? Yeah. Be it a, a mobile phone runner. And maybe not a year, right? But you're going to get like five Mario games in three years to some degree. Who knows what they are? Maybe they're not all 3D platformers or whatever. But yeah. All right. Well, moving on into the community's take now that we've got that out of the way. It was a little longer winded than I intended to go, but you know, Sounds I get like it. Sounds like this podcast. Um, yeah, sounds like this podcast. Uh, the community state question was a fun one that kind of came up uh, as a response to some of the other questions we were asked. So we asked you guys to play matchmaker with two video game characters, be it main characters or supporting characters, and explain why. For true love, unstoppable offspring, maybe you just want to watch pure chaos unfold. And we got some interesting answers back. So... The first one comes from a longtime listener and patron, Rude Days 93. He says, Bayonetta and Dante from Devil May Cry. The sex alone would be off the charts. Also, have you guys ever seen the death battle between them? Was pretty good. Chris, as someone who recently got through playing Bayonetta and I know has played plenty of Devil May Cry, what are your thoughts? Uh, That sounds dangerous for everybody. So good picks. So, A, we do think that they're compatible in some way. B, pure chaos. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of bit of column A, bit of column B. Yeah, they would have sex that destroys cities, and that's sick. Good for them. (laughs) That sounds like Kratos in the old God of War games. (laughs) I know they would never. They would never be ballsy enough to do it now. You miss them. But I would love for them to make a joke about those to where it's not even sexual related. Just have Kratos do something and then to play joke on the old sex scenes, have the camera just slightly veer away from Kratos and then have button prompts to happen. But it's just him tying like a rope around a sled or something. And it's like, <laughs> oh, triangle, spin the analog stick. I would, even if it was just a side quest or an Easter egg, that would be fantastic. Like it doesn't have to be main game. But there's a lot of fun to be had. I would like it. <laughs> Try this one on for size. B-Raj88, one of our patrons, says, Mario Mario and Chloe Frazier, and if you didn't know, Mario's last name is Mario, <laughs> from the Uncharted series. Uh, my reasoning, Mario was the white knight rescuing Princess Peach, and I don't think she ever put out. And Chloe Frazier, because dad ass. We all know. Do you think Mario yells, it's a me, when he's going through his vinegar strokes? My money is on yes. <laughs> so, Chris, A, what do you think of the of the, the matchup? And then, B, 
What are your thoughts on these uh, on these vinegar strokes? You thinking you think he's a it's a me? <laughs> no, see, first of all, don't insult Chloe Fraser. But second of oh, all, who insulting? Yeah, pairing her up with Mario is insulting. Yeah, <laughs> my man lays pipe. That's that's a, that's a ten going out with a four. Good for Mario for sh- shooting my above man his league, but lays pipe. Listen. You don't understand. This is a man who could potentially be a 10, 11 out of 10 in bed. All I'm saying is that I don't believe Chloe Fraser would marry someone who comes like, don't you think the final one would be, Whoa. I'm pretty sure that's where we'd land. Maybe. I like to think he's just it's a meing the entire time. So like if he's hitting it hard and fast, he's like it's a me, it's a me, it's a me. And then if he's going straight, he's like it's a me. <laughs> it's me, Mario. Leaning down, whispering in her ear, it's a me. <laughs> oh my god! The Pedro Pascal version. I could see sleeping with Tony <laughs> Fraser. There you go. Yeah, you found a way to make it right. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mario Pascal. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. All right. Well, thanks, B Raj. That was an interesting idea to put in our heads. Uh, Velvet Thunder coming in with another interesting answer. Ryu and Ken. They've been playing cat and mouse for 30 years now. The sexual tension is palpable. It's about time for a different kind of fisting. Oh, good God. Um, I thought they were already <laughs> dating, so this is a good answer. Mm. <laughs> Ken, can I have sex with you? Sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate that. That was really disgusting. And great work. Mm. Yeah, do you think that that's the move he's doing when sure he's you can. in this other way? <laughs> yes, exactly. Ryu's just on a step stool. This is getting out of hand, guys. I should have never given this answer. It's getting out of fist. To pull it back a notch, here's a fun one. Shave Dog 247. Haven't heard from him in a while. Hope you're doing well. He says, obviously, Nathan Drake and Lara Croft. But they are not only treasure hunters, but assassins hunting each other, Mr. and Mrs. Smith style. I would watch that movie. <laughs> I would watch that movie too. They should do that with, I, I've got it. Nathan Fillion's older Drake that they did in that fan movie and and Angelina Jolie coming back as Laura Croft because she was already in Mr. and Mrs. Smith and bam, you've got it. But more importantly, if we're really talking about this, would they really be assassins hunting each other? Or would this be a thing where they just have an ongoing count that's like a, a, a competition for their entire marriage where they see how many people they can kill? Like, Maybe. Oh, we don't we don't want to kill this one guy, but I killed eight hundred people on the way here. <laughs> well, yeah, but those guys are trying to kill you. But I mean, so is this guy that you don't want to kill. Yeah. Um I mean, I feel like it would work if they were on opposing sides of like trying to find Shambhala or whatever. Like she was working with Rafe or something like that until <laughs> He realizes, I guess it's just Chloe Fraser, right? Chloe's arc just is Laura's arc in that. I was about to say that, but also Uncharted 4 is hitting PC if it hasn't already, right? I think it has. Yeah, yeah, it has. All right, here you are, PC people. You can easily mod Laura Croft in 
and have her be the one that fights instead of Nadine. Nadine doesn't exist anymore. It's just Laura Croft. You use all of her voice work from previous games, archival <laughs> voice work, and you just throw it in there. And you've got, you know, Arrested Development. You, you know, you throw some voices in there, you throw some animations in there, you throw a body character, bam, you got yourself a stew. You know what I'm saying? There uh, you go. I know what you're saying. That's fun. I do like the idea, though. I don't think it would work as a game, but as a movie, watching Nathan Drake and Laura Croft just going out and, and you know, <laughs> trying trying to not kill each other, that would be even funnier. <laughs> like, they're just trying to do everything they can to just not kill each other, but booby traps are setting off. It'd be pretty fun. Uh, Sir Derek is our last one that we're going to do. He's one of our patrons. He says, Tifa Lockhart and Dante from DMC. And I think he means specifically the DMC reboot from uh, Ninja Theory, though you can make sure and let me know if that's what you meant. Uh, you got to be careful nowadays. You can't say DMC for, De- for Devil May Cry because people may think that you're talking about reboot. Uh, he says, they seem like they would have a fun exciting relationship. I could see that. Tifa's a badass. Dante, of course, badass. I think that there's clearly that idea of uh, of the Bayonetta girl. But if I'm not mistaken, I haven't played Bayonetta 2 or 3. I haven't played Bayonetta 1 since PS3 days. Isn't Bayonetta... Is she like a lesbian? Or is she bi? Is it, I don't... I feel like I don't know. I'm trying to understand if I have, am, am actually gleaning information from the video games that people are sharing or if all I'm getting is people's fanfics from whenever I'm on Twitter and see these things. I can see it old. being either way. Yeah, probably. What they've probably done is hinted at her sexuality being maybe not the straightest. And then people are like, oh my God, this verifies all the fanfics I've always wanted. But you exactly. know what? I don't know because I have not played either of those two games. So. Great game. We'll see what Nintendo allowed them to do. Uh, And we're going to end that section of Community's Take. But before we go into the news, we have a question from one of our patrons. Mr. No Fate uh, asked while we're talking about community here, do you ever plan to host a games night with fans? Maybe a 24-hour charity marathon. Chris. Brett. We have not discussed this to answer the question truthfully. <laughs> I think some of that comes from the fact that this podcast for years was done with Saul and I being in the same room. And there's been a lot of change in how things go and how we prepare. And the show just generally feels different, not only in the end product, but I think in the way it goes about being made. So I don't think that that has necessarily crossed our minds as Chris and I have kind of tried wrangling in this show and slowly transforming it to what it is when it's us and not necessarily trying to be what it was when it was Saul and I or Saul and us. Um, I'm 100% not against it. I would just have to figure out and think about the logistics of how we would make it work when we're from different areas. So what we may do is one of those times where Chris has got time off like he did early last year, we may make a chance for you know us to do it as part of him coming down and visiting again or something to that degree. Maybe I go up there and visit with him. There's ways to look at it and approach it, but it is something I'm interested in. I would like to hear 
how many listeners are interested in participating in something like that. Because I do think it'd be very fun to do something for charity uh, and, and mm-hmm. do something that's fun in a selfless manner uh, and be able to prepare for it. Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm always down to play with people. Um, so, I mean, I think as long as we can figure out, because I think the hardest part would be that we're in separate places right now. So, like, how would both of us show up on stream, like that kind of stuff. But just the small, after small logistical things, it's just a matter of planning it out. So, I have no problem doing yeah. it. Well, and that's why I think maybe trying to have it be something that we do special whenever, you know, we do try and visit and be in the same place physically. Because at that point, the logistics of that is figured out. And then, I, of course, if you're coming down, I'm probably already taking time off the work as well as yourself. So staying up for 24 hours doesn't sound, you know, staying up for 24 hours and not worrying about work doesn't sound like a <laughs> impossibility like it does in our normal day to day lives. So no fate lookout. We will kind of look and see what we want to do and uh, how we might be able to make that happen. But yeah, anyone who's interested in participating or would like to see that, please let us know. We might do something where it's uh, a mix of us doing stuff as well as doing things that community people can come in and play um, that we can easily have some goofy fun with. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll think that through. But Chris, are mm-hmm. you ready to go into the news? I'm ready to go into the news. Well, if you want to be like No Fate and get questions with preferred treatment for being read out on the show as well as just supporting the show you know what you should do you should head over to patreon.com slash nartech and consider giving as little as a dollar per month just like our newest patron spencer who has come in as of today and become our new patron spencer we appreciate you we hope you enjoy the show and i see that his email's got sora in it so all i need to know is that our kingdom hearts section that we're going to get to later yes chris i said it kingdom hearts section (laughs) it's okay i put a section off for me in the news so we're fine (laughs) it's completely okay we'll balance it out i put a question directly after that one that is more geared at you it works but spencer thank you anyone else who would like to do so please consider. And then lastly, if you're listening to the show or watching it and you like what you see and or hear, consider giving some kind of rating, review, comments to let people know what you liked about the show. Talk with us about what you thought about things we talked about throughout the show or just let other people know whether or not you think the show is worth their time. We are always looking to hear out from you guys. Be part of the community's take. Head over to our social media sites if you feel so inclined to do. Uh, We have Twitter at TriangleSQRD. We have Facebook and a group, Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. We have a Discord that we always have linked down in our descriptions. Feel free to click into that. Jump in. Talk to us. Uh, share your work, just like one of our listeners and users in the Discord, Swanland, who recently got a chance to review a game and shared it with our community. And we always say, as long as you're not only in the community to pimp your own stuff out, we absolutely do not mind you coming in and spreading your work with people you like to fraternize with. But with that said, we're going to go ahead and move into the news. And the first piece is about Dead Island 2. It has risen from the grave once more and is now nearing its newer and earlier April 21st release. First announced in 2014, 
The game has gone through many iterations and studios during its gestation period. The project started at Jaeger, the studio behind Spec Ops The Line, until being taken from them and moved over to Sumo Digital. The project stalled out there too until Deep Silver took it internal, and the studio currently working on it, Dombuster, has announced the game has fondly gone gold. The game is set in a quarantined and abandoned Los Angeles and features six playable characters. Quarantined, huh? How timely. <laughs> we think that's Chris. why it got delayed so far. Let's get <laughs> some, distance. For a world some distance away. <laughs> All right, Chris. Um, did, were you a big fan of, I know you're a big fan of Dying Light, which we know originally came mm-hmm. uh, from the people who made the original Dead Island. Uh, you excited for this at all? No. No, not. not. I don't believe this. I, I, I can't believe this game's going to be good until I hear from a lot of trustworthy sources that it's actually fine strictly because of its development hell yeah it's been in development for two it's been in development for almost two consoles generations like Mm. let's let's i'll see i'll see when it comes i understand that but you know i've kind of i've both softened in some regards and hardened in others my thoughts toward development hell and a lot of that comes down to how does development hell impact the thing? Is it eventually becoming a completely different game that just bears the same name? Uh, something in the regards of like Final Fantasy 15 that bore a lot of the characters from 13 verses, but ended up being an entirely different game and story um, and a different name in that regard, but still had a touchstone of things. Or something like The Last Guardian, which I do think was an amazing game. Uh, it may not have sold what everyone would have wanted to see it sell or been the big, crazy game that Sony maybe needed it to be due to the budget. But the game was amazing. And it was very... That is actually one of those games Yuna uh, had asked about. I've debated over and again playing that game again. And it's just a beautiful game that I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Uh, Shadow of the Colossus is one of those... like It's replayable because of the type of gameplay but that's not necessarily what's going on in the last guardian or even a game like Ico or eco, however you want to say it. So yeah, you know, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. And I really doubt that any part of this game is anything that they were discussing or looking at in 2013 when it was announced, but that doesn't mean it's also automatically going to be good. I bring this up because of Lords, uh, Lords of the fallen, that new you know, follow up slash reboot to the original Lords of the Fallen. Yeah. The um, Lords of the Fallen. Yeah. I am excited for that game in a reasonable sense. Yeah. Like it looks good, but it's been in development hell for a long time. But should I really judge the game that we do get against the game that was originally announced in 2015? Is that really fair? You know? I mean, it is and it isn't. <laughs> it's hard because, yeah, it is and it isn't, right? Like, I want to say yes. I see why you'd say no. But my gut is telling me, yeah, of course. Like, I don't know. It, it's hard, right? Because well, if I order a cheeseburger and then an hour later they give me a chicken a chicken sandwich, they're like, yeah, well, it changed during development. I'd be like, okay, but I didn't order a chicken sandwich. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I I just think it's... 
nothing is inherently good or bad about it, but this is a strong argument towards my thing of being very weary of announcing games too early because you run into this type of thing. And no matter what you do, a game that has been in development for well over five years since or even five years since its announcement is always going to have an air of distrust of there's got to be a reason it took this long. There's got to be problems that they couldn't have fixed and it's going to be evident in the game. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter. It's about the feeling that consumers get. Um, and it doesn't matter how good Final Fantasy VII Remake Part One was, right? There mm-hmm. were people that were really nervous about playing that game up until it released and everybody talked about how good it was. But that's a hard thing to shake. A lot of people were just, they assumed it was going to be a terrible game because it was announced and didn't come out until five years after it was announced. It's not unfair to think about. No. You know? Yeah. It just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it it lives in the same territory as Duke Nukem Forever and Skull and Bones and Beyond Good and Evil and Deep Down and Agent. So until it comes out and until I know it's good, I'm not going to get myself excited. But I hope it's good. I like this kind of game. But let's not forget, Dead Island 1 and Dead Island Riptide are not good games. So I didn't like Dead Island 1. A lot of people did. Not me. <laughs> but I know people loved it. So for people who did love it and want more of that, I hope that's what you get. Uh, but you know, I, I do think that there's a really interesting correlation about the fact that by all means, a game getting delayed should be looked at as a good thing. But far more often than not, we consider a delay to be synonymous with a game that's going to be bad to some degree or not as good as we were hoping for. And I wonder, I I think what that is, is that it's happened enough times that we've made a correlation to causation. A delay is indicative of a problem and that problem is still going to be visible in the final one. And the delay just feels like a way to try and hide it as much as possible while it's still there. I think that's happened enough times that we've made that correlation so whether or not it's fair, I understand how the group of gamers and consumers, at least definitely at this more um, enthusiast level, kind of worry and create that. I don't think everyday people have those same fears. I don't think if you tell some dude who is going to buy, let's say, Dead Island 2, even if he knows about it, I don't think that every person who's not like an enthusiast in this regard is as worried about it as us. So something within the enthusiast industry has really happened to push us there, whether it's fair or not. It's where we are. (laughs) Exactly. I've waited nine years. I can wait until a day before it comes out to find out if it's actually good. You know what I mean? Will reviews really, you know, sway your opinion in any way. Like if, if the game reviews like an eight, eight and a half. Well, to me, it doesn't matter about the thing is for me, like I don't, really use numbered reviews you know outside of the metacritic draft which we could update if we wanted to um i wouldn't look at scores for anything other than yeah okay the general consensus is this is good but that doesn't mean that people i trust like it like i will go to like acg maddie plays skill up like those kind of people and watch their reviews that's more what what, i mean yeah so let's say each one of them uh, label it as a buyer you know, whatever, because isn't it buy, rent, wait for sale? Yeah, usually. Their, their scale like for, for the most part. So if they say buy or rent, are you a lot more likely? Yeah. If they were like, oh, this game is awesome, buy it for 70, I'd be like, holy shit, okay. Or, or hey, buy it for 50. You're right. still like, okay, good to know, 
even if maybe I should wait a little bit longer. Yeah, because a lot of the, especially with with reviews like that, it's just listening to the thing and seeing if the game is something you'd like. I remember, and it didn't actually pan out this way, but I remember people would t- when people were talking negatively about Callisto at first, some of the stuff I was hearing was like, that sounds fine. <laughs> like one of the big criticisms I remember hearing was it's too much like Dead Space. And I'm like, so? <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, my thoughts on it after playing it are just not, not, not enough, enough like, like Dead space. space. And that's a little unfair to put on it. But after playing Dead Space, if you were going to miss that much, you'd just been better off making Dead Space but not Dead Space. Yeah, do something <laughs> different. Yeah, so fair enough on that. Uh, moving on to the next piece of news, prolific Finnish developer Remedy has opened up about the sequel to 2010's Alan Wake. Uh, the studio CEO, Tiro Vertala, commented about it following the publication of the studio's finances and had the following to say, quote, Alan Wake 2 is in full production. Um, the game will soon have all content in place and it is playable from start to finish, he continues. We will then move on to polishing the experience. Alan Wake is a unique brand and holds high value for the company today. He also had this to say on the 2021 remaster of the original game. Quote, Alan Wake remastered has not yet generated royalties. However, we expect the sales to increase as the release of Alan Wake 2 becomes imminent. End quote. The, the game was announced as a title coming out this year and was described by Sam Lake as, quote, survival horror, uh, which I think is fair to call the first game survival horror in many ways. I don't yeah. know what else you could reasonably label it. Um, if you're going to try and give it a, a label that already exists, that's probably the closest. Yeah, I would think for me more like a thriller than survival horror, but I'm picking up what you're putting down. I think gameplay is the the differencing factor there i think the story is thriller the gameplay elements that it chooses to use are more of like a survival horror because it's resource management yeah that's totally fair i can see that you know to, to survive within that so um yeah if i was going to try and give it it'd be like survival thriller yeah survival thriller seems more like <laughs> yeah so we'll see how that ends up going. Uh, it almost makes me wonder if this game is going to be considerably darker than the first. It sounded like it would be. Yeah, yeah if they're calling it survival horror. Um, hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited for Alan Wake 2. Do you still think it's going to hit this year with the way they're talking about? Or do you think it being playable from start to finish but moving in, do you think this is going to scooch out into 2024? It sounds like someone really wants me to think it's coming out this year. But it's not. <laughs> but yeah. it's probably not, though. No. I get that vibe, too. I get the vibe that they're never going to say until, like, September, and they're going to be like, you know, we were we're really excited to have this game out in February or March. You know? That's yeah. That's what it's sounding like right now. It feels to me like they're going to, like, maybe this next Sony showcase, they're going to announce the date, and then they're going to push it into 2024. <laughs> We're like, oh, it's coming out October 31st, 2023. And we're all excited for a Halloween album wake. And then they're like, oh, so sorry. You're actually going to be playing it in the middle of the summer. So enjoy. So here's a real question for you. You love the first game. I, do I quite enjoyed game. it myself. Going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier in the episode with this idea of where AAA games are right now. And I think Alan Wake... They're Alan Wake 2, they're really kind of talking about as though it's an independent AAA game. Mm-hmm. 
for the most part. I mean, actually, is Alan Wake 2 being published by, um, um, how am I forgetting who Focus published on. Control? Oh, is it Focus? Okay. It is Focus. So it's, so it's more of a double A. Well, in the same vein of what we're talking about, are you hoping this game is more along the lines and length of an Alan Wake 1? Or are you okay with the idea of it expanding up a little bit? Because I'd say Control and Alan Wake 1 are about the same when you think about main game and you're not talking about platinuming or anything. Like the average person who's playing Control and doing a decent bit of side content and all of the main story is probably looking at somewhere in the ballpark of like 15 hours. And I would say Alan Wake 1 is somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 12. Yeah, um, I would say that's true. I think I'd want it to hit like maybe a little longer than Dead Space level. Um, Or at least give me the, yeah, or at least give me the replayability of a Resident Evil 2 and have that. But I'd want a full-on story. I just don't want an open world, even open area game, personally. I want a linear, tell me that story, creep me out, give me the X-Files vibe kind of thing. I I could see that. I think, uh, you know, it's really funny that they talk about Dead Space being Resident Evil 4 in space. And I understand why they're coming that way because that's really closer in the gameplay to what Resident Evil was at the time. But when you think about their actual map layout and the way in which you move around it, I think that there's more in common with Resident Evil 2 Remake and Dead Space than there is Resident Evil 4. Because I really think of the Ishimura as being kind of like uh, the Raccoon City Police Department that you Mm -hmm. spend most of your big parts of the game in with Resident Evil 2. Uh, like, yeah, you go off and you go to the labs and you go underneath, but that's kind of like when you get off the Ishimura to go to um, the Vanguard or whatever the ship is called, yeah. or when you go down to the planet. You know, it's like, I don't think it's... The heart of that game is Ishimura, just just like the heart of Resident Evil 2 remake and the original Resident Evil is the police department itself. Um so, yeah, I don't know. I think of that, too, and I think a world more like Dead Space uh, 1 and 2 would be would be great. I mean, there's ways you can scale it up, but this is a game I'm hoping is hitting that kind of 14-hour, you know, 14, 15-hour window myself. Right. Uh, I'd be curious to see if they can hold themselves off from wanting to do that, but I think if any developer is, it's them, right? Uh, even, even like Quantic, uh, Qu- uh, Quantum Break or whatever is not a long game. It's no. a little elongated because of the episodes by nature of what they're doing. Uh, but it's not a super long game. You know, I mean, here, I, I'm, I'm out of curiosity. I'm going to look it up on uh, how long to beat if it would work. Alan Wake <laughs> 2 is being published by Epic. Oh, really? Okay. Huh. Uh, what game was I just talking about? No, I was saying I was going to look up on how long to beat. Quantum. Quantum, yeah, that's right. Because I, I feel like they're gonna, they'll have to account for the episodes too, right? You think? I would so. say they do. So around thirteen hours. Yeah. So they're, I'd say they're a developer that is only known. Like, yeah, you can play Control for twenty eight hours, twenty five, twenty eight, whatever. If you're going for completionist, uh, just like I think Alan Wake One, if you're really going for completionist for everything, is like mm-hmm. twenty five hours. Something along um, those lines. Two playthroughs. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's what I'm hoping for in comparison to like the uh, a game I love, but like God of War 2018's like 25 hour campaign. Like it's a great campaign and I do love it, but I'm wanting to see more games pull back. And I mean, you know, if it was Focus Home, that would have also made sense because of the fact that uh, Focus Home actually does have a considerable number of games that kind of exist in that realm while also pushing further because like Plague Tale are both like, you know, 10 to 12 hour, 15 hour games. So, yeah, we'll see. Short Kings. All right. Short Kings, yeah. It's a good way to look at it. I think uh, Remedy's got a really good track record. I'm a little surprised that those rumors of when Sony was you know, going around and visiting, I could see a world where Sony acquired Remedy. They seem like they fit each other's... Like they, they, they seem like they gel. They do. I do hope it happens. Not Because I just think they could make some cool games. Give them a bigger yeah. budget, consistent home. Happy with that. Yeah. Give me, give me, hold on. Give me Alan Wake 3. That is a Sony exclusive where he is finding the stories of Sony IP games. <laughs> and those games are coming to life in his world. <laughs> that actually kind of sounds just not too far from that God of War Ragnarok Easter egg where you can find poems yeah. that are all just poems that are describing other PlayStation IP. Really cool Easter egg. I'll give them that. They did a really good job with that. (laughs) All right, moving on to the next thing. Chris's big piece of news. Apex Legends Season 16 is making sweeping changes to Respawn's prolific free-to-play battle royale. Launching on the day of recording, Season 16 Revelry brings with it a new team deathmatch mode, which replaces the fledgling arenas mode. Design director Evan Kikulich, interesting name, talked about some of the rebalancings of a of the game's legends quote this season we're touching every legend with classes perks and meta updates end quote response focus on balancing led them to askew adding a new legend to the mix something that has not happened before the team has split the legends into five classes assault skirmisher recon controller and support the most interesting change is that the support class legends can now craft fallen ally banners which will make recovering your TTV Wraith teammate who abandoned the rest of the squad easier. Uh, While they did not add a legend respawn is adding a new assault rifle to the mix. The first weapon added since season 11 back in 2021. It's a burst fire energy weapon called nemesis. Chris, here is your floor to say whatever. Um, I honestly, I actually don't have a ton to say. I just thought it was important in the news. Um, But I am excited for legend changes. I'm not disappointed there's no new legend, but they are it is getting crowded, so I am kind of glad they've moved away from that. But that's a conversation I want to have when we get into uh one of the later topics. Yeah, I guess my only thing would be I don't it's fine because Valorant and or not Valorant, but League of Legends has thousands of heroes at this point. Of course. Um but yeah, there's not too much. A lot of this just sounds really fun. Um, I'm really happy with some of the changes, and I've played a little bit of it today. Uh, the Nemesis Assault Rifle is broken, which most guns that start the season are broken. They'll balance patch it in a couple days, but it's really fun. So the new season's been really cool, um, and I just I can't wait to maybe get back into it. It's been a while. I had it actually deleted from my console for a couple months, so... Yeah. It's like I played a game with you and ruined the game. <laughs> You're like, never again. I'm just going to delete it. <laughs> well, now we're going to play again. We're all back. And there's a team deathmatch mode, easier to get into. 
Ironically, I think I do still have it on my system. Let's go. You deleted it and I didn't. I might be wrong, but I feel pretty positive about that. That That's actually Uh, very All right. Next thing up, Sony has announced that PlayStation 5 users have until May to add the 19 games in the PS Plus collection to their library. Once added to your library, like all of the monthly PS pay, uh, PS Plus games they've always given and what is now considered the essential tier games, uh, you will retain access to as long as your subscription is active. Or, again, if you lapse your subscription, once you come back, they will still, once again, be accessible by you. I know a lot of people seemed to, again, in the, the vacuum of the internet being what it is, people seem to take umbrage with this. I am not very surprised at this. And I think that this may have actually communicated the problem with Sony trying to rebrand PS plus into a multi-tiered thing, because I have people in my life who I know are into gaming enough and play enough. Like my buddy, Brandon, one of our patrons, um, he called me, and I think there was some confusion, and I might be misrepresenting him. I don't think I am. But he seemed to think that they were going to be pulling all sorts of games and that they just weren't going to be playable anywhere. Um, and there was definitely confusion around this. So I don't think Sony's bet on trying to rebrand PS Plus into a tiered collection has made doing things like this easy because it generates an easy point of confusion. Um And looking at why, I think it seems pretty fair that almost all of these games exist in one of the tiered, um, you know, in the, in the, uh, what is that? It's not essential, the extra tier. Uh, Most of them are there. And I think that this is to push people to up into that when they're new coming into PS5s as PS5s are becoming far more widely available. Chris, do you have really any thoughts on this? I mean, anything you'd, you'd want to add to that discussion? Not a ton. I mean, I think, I think it, I, it sucks, but I kind of see why it's happening. A lot of these games are already in the collection, so I really don't think this is too bad, and I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I think, as like you said, as long as you're a PS Plus even extra subscriber, you probably have most of these games available to you. Mm-hmm. You know, the big thing for anyone to think about here is like, yeah, they are in the extra tier. The one kind of unfortunate thing here for anyone new coming in after this date who wants to try and get these, they are tied until the, basically until you decide that you don't want the extra tier anymore or Sony removes them from the extra tier and in general, which seems unlikely because a lot of the PS Plus games are first-party games, but you do have games like Resident Evil 7 and Monster Hunter World um, and Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy that could run the risk of just being pulled off of the service in general and then you not having access to them, whereas the PS Plus collection being a floating thing forever would have solved that. Um, But, you know, I think that the first real thing to say here is that this is a reality of subscription services, as unfortunate mm-hmm. as they are. Um, at any point in time, these things could happen. I don't think that there's any reason to think that you should be reasonably more upset for this than you would by the fact that Sony changes out which games they've given for free every month for the entire 10-plus years that this has been a service. Um, 
So that's what that would be my argument. It's unfortunate, but they're giving you plenty of heads up notice. You can save these games, add them to your library, no matter what level of PS Plus you are at, uh, and go from there. Um, do think that there's probably a way they could have tried to communicate this better, but the end result will ultimately be okay. I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of backlash on it, but. It does bring us to an interesting question that uh, one of our patrons asked us. So Jehudi MD, such a longtime listener <laughs> and a longtime patron. Doubt. He says probably kind of an early question in its life cycle. But what would you grade the PS5 at this point in time? I would ask for personal opinion versus the grand scheme of things. So games, hardware, UI, value. What do you think, Chris? Um, I mean, I think personal opinion, I would have to give it like a B to an A. I think just in terms of the fact that there's not a ton of PS5 games exclusively now, I think might bring the grade down a little bit. Um, but even just the performance boosts to games on PS4 is a huge factor to, I think, bring the personal grade up for me. Okay. Any thoughts on the actual hardware itself, the UI, what you consider to be the value factor? Because one thing that's also a little different is we're more than two years in at this point, but we've yeah. not seen a cost reduction. Do you well, think that that matters or not? No, I don't think we will because it was the hottest selling item when it was not findable. Why would they bring the price down now that it is, you know, you can walk into a yeah. store and buy it at Walmart. Uh, in terms of the UI, I don't, I don't hate it. I think it's totally fine. Um, but I've said before that the UI could be a drop-down box and I would be happy. So that's fine. Um, hardware, I think it's. I still think it's a little big. Like I'd love a smaller version that I could tuck on my shelf. But I'm, I don't have any bones about it. I think the hardware's fine. I think it runs well. It's mostly quiet unless you're playing a game off disc. So and like I said, overall, I think it's a great console. Got to go. Got to go. Be like a B plus for me. Okay. I want to give it an A minus. Uh, and I'm glad he says right now, because I do think that there's a point where it was not th that right. You know, at launch, it, it had a lot more lacking from it. Uh, and I also want to preface the fact that my A minus is with the newest update for the system UI that is currently in beta that I have. And I sent a code to Chris and um, Blake because it does allow you to give the code to up to five people. Um, so with that in mind, and with all the stuff that it brings to it, I think it puts the PlayStation at a point where most of the things that I think it should have launched with, it is now come feature complete with. So much like Xbox, uh, you now have the ability for you to wirelessly update your controller instead of always having to plug it in to the USB-C mm -hmm. uh, to do that update, which is a very nice quality of life feature. Uh, when you're downloading a PS4 game, it will automatically scan and look and see if you have a cloud save for that game, and it will download it or ask you to download uh, if you want to download it at the same time as you're downloading a PS4 game um, or a PS5 game that it can see has the ability to do the save. Now, a lot of these, that feature in particular is based on which developers choose to utilize it, but mm -hmm. now that it's there... It's not necessarily on Sony. It's something that the developers can go through and do. So I think that's a really nice thing. Uh, Discord coming in with much higher integration is a huge benefit to me. I think that's a really smart move. Um, 
I think the UI itself is sleek. It's fast. It gives you what you want to know. It's not perfect. Still room to grow. Uh, VRR support moving up to 1440p capability. These are all the things that I think it gets really hard to split hairs from the point where they are right now. Um, I think value is excellent. I think it's been excellent since day one. Even if, like Chris mentioned, there's not enough PS5 exclusive games, that is an issue, and I do think that that knocks it down some. I think the value for what it offers just in general is really high because I think being able to... One of the biggest value propositions for the system for me, right? And even this ties into hardware, um, has really just been the ability to push console gaming far closer to the PC space to the point where what I used to do with PS4 Pro was always be on quality. And I've really found with PS5, because it's consistent and it's good enough, that the two sweet spots for this, one of the which I sadly cannot uh, utilize because of my own TV, um, one is that performance mode consistently gives you great-looking games that run at a very smooth 60 frames per second. Very seldom is that not true. Uh, and... A lot of developers and a lot of games are pushing that even further while still having things like ray tracing being in these games at their performance mode, like Spider-Man, like uh, Ratchet and Clank. Those are awesome. And I think they're probably the best examples of how powerful the PS5 can be when really developed for with those things in mind. Uh, But I think a lot more games, Dead Space included, Hogwarts Legacy included, uh, God of War Ragnarok had this as well. And they updated Ratchet and Clank and Spider-Man for this 40 frames per second quality mode where it it keeps all the quality that you expect and anticipate with much less of a drop, keeps things like ray tracing, but gives you that 10 more frames a second. Now, here's the kicker. You have to have a TV with VRR support in order for these things to work. So when you look at that, there's a benefit for people who have newer TVs. My OLED TV, LG B8, is a wonderful TV. I love it. And it... The only thing it's lacking is that support, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, that and 120 hertz, I can't do 4K 120 hertz because of my HDMI. Um, so eventually when I upgrade my TV, I think the, the the hardware itself, the system itself is already accounting for those things. A minus, I think, is a fair thing, and it has room to grow. If it wasn't for this newest update that added so many quality of life fixes, I think I'd be in Chris's range of a B plus. But thankfully... It did. So I think hopefully everyone else agrees <laughs> once they get this new update. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, Chris, I know that we kind of are circling around whether we want this to be the main topic to a degree. It is just news as everything else is to a degree. Uh, but it's, instead of it being a pointed news piece, it's more of an observational news piece. So we're going to have a discussion around that. Um The death of many games as a service has come rapidly in the last few weeks. Uh, Turtle Rock announced the support for Back for Blood has ceased. Marvel's Avengers made the same announcement recently. EA's Knockout City, its little dodgeball game, is also ending service soon. It can be assumed that the Battlefield franchise cannot dodge a dodgeball since the mobile version of the shooter was not able to dodge cancellation. This game died on the vine before it even left its testing phase. This adds to a growing list, which includes Apex Mobile, Babylon's Fall, Crime Site, Let It Die 2, Crossfire X, and many more. There's also a recent um, somewhat high-profile Battle Royale that got canceled that I cannot remember the name of that also ended support, sadly. Um, But... 
Crossfire X being a particularly concerning announcement, as not only is the multiplayer dying, but the single-player campaign is also going to be dust in the wind, which is a very interesting choice. With Sony announcing that they have 10-plus games-as-a-service titles in development, it's worth noting that all these games' deaths, as the future that Jim Ryan envisions, may be dead before it even arises. And so I know that that's a little editorializing on Chris's part to uh, for dramatic effect. But I do think that there's a reasonable question to be had here about gaming trends, first and foremost. Publishers want to hop onto those trends. And then more importantly, what is seen as a success or a failure for these games? From, of course, a success and a failure from us as player standpoint, but also the more important side for the company is success and failure from a monetary standpoint. And then whether or not these are things that may point to Sony coming in a little too late, potentially, and whether we think that that is the case with some of these games as a service titles. Um, so to kind of start that conversation off, I really want to focus in on some of these games and figure out how easy is it to really look and figure out what we personally view as a success and a failure. I think we can look at players and think that a game that has only been in live service, you know, announced as a live service style game and only got support for, you know, six months to a year, maybe a year and a half. I think it's pretty easy to look at that from our standpoint and go failure. Would you agree with that, Chris? I I would say so. Yeah. Okay. The secondary question that has to come part of that, right? Is, Outside of us viewing it as a success or a failure, what do you think the publisher of these games uh, or the developers who self-published these games expected of it? And do you do you think there's a correlation between what we as consumers and players consider a failure equating to what the internal publishers and game developers may consider a failure. Do you think there's a pretty high correlation of when we think it's a failure, they think it's a failure? Or do you think that there's times where the game is ending support, but that's just because it was winding down enough and it made enough money that while it's unfortunate they had to close out, it's not necessarily been a failure so much as it's becoming no longer sustainable. Like, the real question I guess I'm trying to ask is all games will reach a, will eventually reach a point of unsustainability yeah. which is you would consider a failure. Well, but you don't, you know, depending on how long it took before it hit that point of unsustainability, like if World of Warcraft uh, if World of Warcraft closed tomorrow, you wouldn't have called World of Warcraft a failure. No one no, would. Absolutely not. So how do those two things kind of come together? And do you think that that really, do you think that what we think of as successes and failures is always necessarily what the developers and publishers view as successes and failures? And I think that will give us a lot of insight into how Sony may or may not be feeling. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because you would think something like Babylon's Fall is a failure, right? Completely failed out the gate. But then you look at Apex Legends Mobile, and that game was making money. They just it just wasn't meeting the standard they wanted. So because they wanted it more like the game, what you play on consoles translates to what you play on mobile, and that was not how Apex Legend Mobile was. 
so there's lots of reasons that these games get canceled, but I think in the vast majority of them, the player base dwindles to a point where it's like, well, what are we, what are we doing supporting this? Like I, I played some Knockout City. That game was fun, but not a lot of people played it. It wasn't a game you heard about. Yeah. So I think that's when you look at something and you go, yeah, maybe it didn't fail. Like maybe EA broke even on Knockout City, but it it didn't take the world by storm. So in that sense, yes, it did fail, right? But it's funny because I look at games that I've played. Like like I played, I used to play a game called Vigor, which is um, it's like an escape from Tarkov type thing. You go out and you fight, and that game is not big. I've I hear zero people talking about that game. Okay, and yet that game is still going strong to this day. So I think it depends on the studio. I think it depends on how big that studio is, right? EA needs to make a bigger game than I would, right? Mm -hmm. I could survive on a game. It's like, yeah, we have a thousand players who play. And maybe I can't retire off this game. Right. Right. Actively play it. But for EA, that same game that I'm profitable with, they can't profit on, right? Mm -hmm. Just overhead costs being EA, you know? So it's... It's all degrees. It's just I think in a lot of ways it just depends on who the publisher is. You know, a good selling game for Square Enix is a failure. So it just it all depends on on who you who's talking. Yeah, it's it's a question of expectations and how reasonable they are. And uh, <laughs> TT Dog made the joke in the Discord, which is a fairly positive one, that Square Enix has had multiple games that have sold a lot of copies and made t- made a lot of money as far as we can tell, and yet they're always considered internal disappointments. Like, it failed to meet sales expectations. Like, it didn't hit the targets they set for it. Uh, and I think that we can look at that as Square calling it a failure. And I guess in as far as a success or a, or a failure leads to an IP continuing forward or being supported for a longer period of time, then that's a pretty cut-and-dry thing where we can say Marvel's Avengers never really knocked it out of the park with any player base and it also didn't seem to mark, knock it out of the park with uh, Square Enix's expectations versus what they feel like they put into it budget-wise as to what they expected to get back. So that seems like a, care, a clear basis of correlation between the two. But then I think about some of these games like Knockout City like, like you say is it reasonable to think that game broke even and EA just got to a point where they go Hey, we've been happy with the performance of the game up until the point where right now we're at a we're at a point where if we continue to support it, then the game starts to become a a financial failure because we're spending too much money to keep supporting it in comparison to what we're getting in for it. So ending it and having that end date is the best thing that makes sense. Um, I think the other question that kind of comes to my head is. You brought up League of Legends, right? And I, I brought up uh, World of Warcraft. Yeah. And when I think about those two games in particular, I think both of them can be rightfully considered games of service, right? No one really thinks about it, but the MMO service and the way that they go about uh, making money and continuing to support is very much in line with what we view as a game as a service nowadays. So when we think about that, like, what is a what is a reasonable length of time for a games as a service style game to exist 
get updates, continually be supported, and given a lot of support in comparison to what maybe we used to see with the you know twelve to eighteen month support system that we used to get for like Call of Duty games. Um, what is the reasonable distance or length for the average game? To where when it closes after that time period, we don't immediately view it as a failure. Because some of these games, I, I feel like Knockout City went for over a year, right? Uh, I believe so. Maybe a little longer than that. So Knockout City released in Came May of 2021. 20, yeah, 21. So we have to really ask ourselves right now, Knockout City is getting end of support after a year and a half, actually more. Of support. Is that really something that we can look at and we can say that is a fair reason for Sony to be worried that their games coming out might meet the same fate and we're viewing that fate in a strictly negative sense? Because it kind of goes back to what I talked about with Donovan, where I don't think that the aim of any game is to be the next... Okay, let me back up. Not any game, but most games are not made and developed with the intentions that they are going to be the next Grand Theft Auto or the next Minecraft or even the next Apex, something smaller than you know these huge age-old series or uh, long-running things. So I don't think Sony necessarily... From what I'm seeing here... I don't think I have enough of a correlation to say that just because these are games as a service titles and we are seeing games as a service titles die off, that these games will actually be something for Sony to worry about in terms of being able to be viewed successfully myself. And I go back to Donovan kind of mentioned about that Horizon game, right? He said he doesn't think it'll be anything more than basically a flash in the pan. And my real argument back to that was you might be right. Right for long term um, cultural within the within the gaming culture, long term cultural impact, it may be nothing other than just a little flash moment where people play it, and then it kind of dies off after a year. But if it had its flash, and it was able to make a good chunk of money during that flash, and then everything else is just extra money and extra IP recognition and all these things. Would that not be Sony considering that a baseline success? It would not be a smash success, maybe. But at what point does that necessarily matter? Like, do you have any do you have any thoughts on that? And I ask because I think you play a lot more games as a service games than I do. So you may have more insight on the way that people who play those kind of look at and expect from that and how we may be able to apply that to what a corporation would expect. You seem to know a good bit about EA and, and their Apex stuff. Yeah, um, it <laughs> it depends because I think at a certain point you can a bunch of games can can subsist and help each other, right? Especially if you have ten games as a service coming from one publisher, you know, service A failing, it's failing your expectations, but surface but service B exceeding them, you know, put that together and you're fine. I think. The worry for Sony, right, is they put $3.6 billion into this, right? They bought Bungie yeah. for their live yeah. service expertise. 
So you have to imagine that if these games don't go crazy, then maybe they're failures. But it goes back to what I said before. It's a lot harder for Sony as a corporation to have a small game be a success than it is for, I don't know, Focus Home or Chucklefish, some independent publishers, right? So this is, it, it depends on the degree of scale. I think if you look at it where my theory is a lot of these games are MLB games, right? One of them is clearly a Horizon game. Um, the last of us factions. Like I think they're doing it at least smart enough to be able to max or yeah, maximize their their IP. Um, so real quick, because I think that like you, you brought up the Horizon game, right? Yeah, and we're still under the thing of where we're calling this Horizon game a um, for at least what we know and what we have. I think everyone has kind of landed on it being a reasonable comparison point to say. Horizon in a Fallout slash Boundless, isn't that what that game is called? Dauntless, that's what it was called. Yeah. Um, style game. Does being a monster hunter, I, the real question I guess there is, I don't know that I consider Monster Hunter to be a game as a service. And at that point, is Horizon one of them, right? Well, I'm like, thinking even of the if MMO. it is that type of, ah, okay. As, and see, I agree with you there. Like, I would consider an MMO to be more of Sony's I think that they would try and pull that in and fold it into their games as a service ideology even if it is broken off separately does Monster Hunter have a skin store because I tell I'd be willing to put money on the fact that the Horizon thing will I think I'm pretty sure it does I just I don't do that in games so I really don't ever think to look at it so I don't want to come from a place of ignorance that's my barometer but I think for that they it. do right if like I would consider Midnight Suns a game as a service it's got a deal it's got a season pass and it has a skin store as long as those two things are being updated it's it's a service <laughs> well okay so like I'm glad you bring that up because it goes back to the heart of the question of what's a reasonable time because if we're saying that a game like um MLB The Show is a game as a service, which I understand the inclination towards wanting to do that. That is a game as a service for strictly one year. Right. And but then it's, it's not. I don't, dis- I don't agree with that. I don't. Okay, so, well, no, I, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm yeah. saying that that's the way that it would, outside looking in, for someone who doesn't play that type of yeah. game, you view it as, okay, it's supported until the next release is what I thought. Now, is that correct or not? Yes and no. I guess because I'm a guy who plays every year, mm-hmm. my cost of entry is the $90 I spend a year on the deluxe edition. Right? But I'm playing MLB every year. So you're saying that this $90, $70, whatever price you want to put on it, right? Your cost of buying the new game is just one bigger purchase within this continual floating game as a service? Yeah, that's how I feel about MLB. Yeah, you can make your argument fits just as well. Your argument is probably more apt. But for me, as someone who plays every year and plays online and and plays with the live service stuff, it feels to me like a continuous building of of a, of a single live service experience. Maybe I, I think I would put it that way. It's a live service experience, but it's not a live service game in the same way that Apex is. I, I get what you're saying, though. Even though it may not be the exact same character or anything like that, you're equating MLB 23 or whatever the next one's yeah. going to be. I guess 23. 23. Um, 
you're equating MLB 23 with like Destiny Lightfall, where yes. like it's essentially a, a big moment of time for this floating series, and the people who are really playing it as a as a true live service game are in it and getting that day one and forsaking the rest of the content until they're done with this and they're going through, and you're just getting that once a year. I kind of see where you're coming from. I do, of course, I'm looking at it from more of a singular game and you buy the game once and it keeps going. Uh, and games as a service is a hard thing to discuss because it can include games that are purchased and it can include games that are not. It can include free-to-play games. Uh, and that makes it a little harder to f- draw that line because I think it's real easy to look at a game like Forza Horizon and say it's a game as a service. Uh, I don't know that it is, but for the sake of argument, let's say that it is. Does the moment the next Forza Horizon come out invalidate the previous one, and, and and now that's the end of it, or is it this idea that you're just getting more? Like, I get where you're coming from, Chris, and I think that you're saying that in spirit it captures the energy of what you look for in live service games, even though it's not, you know, League of Legends and all these other games continue to float from a single account that you can persistently look back to, even with a break, you're looking at at MLB as something live service akin. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in, in looking at that even, right, let's say that that is the way that goes, right? We call that um, support for, we'll say that MLB 23 is the next expansion, right? Yeah. That's what we'll call it. Is that in that one year, if it does enough business to justify what they were aiming for, then it's successful within that one year period, right? Even if you don't buy 23, right? Say you're one of the guys who buys um, sports games on uh, the every three years mark. I know a lot of people do that. Uh, and I used to, whenever I would buy the FIFA games, I would wait every third year because that would typically be when a, a real change would be noticeable um, for people who aren't as sports driven. You know, like I like FIFA, but I don't care about keeping up with soccer that much. So I can play it every three years, have a good time, and I'll just sporadically play the one I bought prior. Until the new one, until I get an itch to play one that's fresh. Um, but with that in mind, it, it goes back to that's a one year window. And yeah. I'm sure Sony views that as a success. Otherwise, they wouldn't continue to do it. So if they are considering those games as a service titles, I mean, those are pretty easy successes that would be ultimately started and closed within a one year period. Yes. Uh, for the most part. Like, you know, one of the things is, as far as I can tell, they don't drop server support for those games until multiple years down the line normally, right? I believe that's the case, yeah. Like, you can probably still play MLB 19, the show. Most likely. I would imagine so. So that's a little different, right? Because, like, Knockout City going away in in less than two years and just being genuinely unplayable at all, but that's the difference between, like, you know, one is a strictly multiplayer experience and one isn't. Yeah. Um I don't know. It's it's just a hard it's a hard question because I do believe that to me all that makes up a live service is that it has stuff you can pay for and the stuff you can pay for is updated regularly. And it, 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 that also and it also includes you know you can also look at stuff like um, adding maps to Apex or adding legends or adding guns as part of that live service. But to me, I think if something's being updated and I can spend money on the game that is what reads live service to me that's why i would sit here and say 
Marvel Midnight Suns is a, is a live service light. It's not a live service in the same way that Destiny Two or Apex is <laughs> live service light. <laughs> but yeah, I think the real thing for me is that. I consider a game to be live service realistically in this modern thing. I think what separates a game like Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2 on the 360, or let's say Call of Duty World at War, just so there's no confusion of names, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's say call from what separates Call of Duty World at War from Fortnite is realistically that one of them has a constantly upgrading... Uh, uh, f- constantly updated visual flair, uh, you know, cosmetic, whatever you want to call it, something that is random that would drive you to buy that random thing to try a chance at getting something. So, like, I agree with you in that I always view the MLB games as live service because they have that um, dynasty, uh, whatever it's called, the, the, the cards, right? Like, mm-hmm. FIFA has the ultimate team. Diamond Dynasty. And they have... Yeah, Diamond Dynasty for MLB. And those are things that want you to keep playing. They constantly rotate different packs in, I would assume. And then you buy them with chances to try and get certain cards that you're going for. Correct? Yep, exactly. So I think that that would be the differentiating factor between what we used to see as games that had storefronts where you could buy things. You could buy skins maybe and you could buy... um, you could buy map packs like you could in the old Call of Duty games, but they were set in stone. You knew what you were getting, and they eventually got end of support within about 18 months. That I think the difference there now is that you're spending that on random chance on things that are constantly being updated to try and drive you to content that drives you back to the game to hopefully drive you back to that storefront to hopefully mm-hmm. get you to buy something on a, you know, I, I just think that the loop is a little different, but I get what you're saying. Um, so I guess just to wrap this up, I mean, do you, from what you see right now, right, and everything that we've talked about, and looking at some of these games that have died, some of them seemingly a lot earlier than others in terms of their cultural standing. Like I think Babylon's Fall is the one game on here that is truly, truly dead on arrival. It was announced yeah. that they were closing servers within like a, two months after it came out. It was a very short period. Do you think with what we're seeing right now that there's any reasonable chance that Sony has anything to really be worried about for their upcoming games as a service titles? Or do you think since they are a bigger company, games as a service as a whole is not just collapsing in on itself. We still have the bigger games that have bigger budgets behind them. Do you think that that will be enough for Sony's games to get the same risk treatment as all the other titles um i think currently the games that we know about or believe are part of this live service or games as a service thing are all part of ips that i think will carry them i think factions will be fine um it's a last of us thing um i think the horizon game will probably be fine um so I think the thing that Sony has going for it is insulation in the IP. Maybe that you know does put some cold water over what I was saying be- earlier in the show of let's see a new IP with some of these with some of these ideas. Maybe it does put a damper on that, but at the same token, this does also show that putting out too much in the same category of game is not always going to be successful. 
Yeah, I think that's fair because I, I do think that there's also a reasonable thing to say here that part of the reason that these games are closing, whether or not you view them as successes or not, um, is strictly that the these games are built on a fact of trying to vie for as much as your time as possible. And there's just too much competition and a lot of it at a much higher level in terms of funding and everything to be able to really notch out a spot that you can sustainably exist for years on end. Mm-hmm. That's the real challenge. And that doesn't mean the games were failures inherently, but it does mean that their lifespan will very likely often be shorter um, than the people who have more money and you know budget and just general ways to support these games and push them out and have IP that's more recognizable. Uh, because like you said, there is IP names namesakes to carry ideas in a much bigger way. At the end of the day, Knockout City had to try and carve out something for itself from nothing, whereas Last of Us Factions has a built-in understanding of what it is what the world is and excitement around it that now exists outside of video games alone to even going towards tv um so i'd be really curious to see but one thing i think is worth noting sony is still taking those risks from everything that we understand haven's game is a completely original ip yep yep and then there's what gears of effect yeah i think and if that is a game as a service game right if that is that's two so even if we only say that two out of ten, that's not bad. It's not bad at all. And let's not forget two out of ten being new. Who knows? Ga- uh, games as a service could just be a skin store, and then hey, we're updating it with missions. Like it doesn't have to be multiplayer or all of the stuff that people fear. It could just be hey, here's gear this Gears of Effect game that we saw. It's coming out. It's a single player story. We're gonna add costumes for it there's there is a, there's a pvp element or a pve element but i don't think it necessarily takes away from what sony does best in terms of single player games it could just be additive i think the fair thing to see is that there's no way that sony spent three point whatever billion dollars 3.6 billion whatever it was for bungie and then aimed to put out games that they are hoping will take over the market share of people that play Destiny 2. Destiny 2 is part of the sensible purchasing of Bungie to where we already have an established success in Destiny, and now we also have their know-how to help us make other games. The clear idea here is that Sony's not trying to... Sony understands that one of the biggest games they market is Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, and then or Call of Duty in general, and then of course that comes into Warzone, which is one of the biggest of these games. They also know that they do a lot of marketing and push towards Apex, and a lot of marketing and push towards Destiny. And when you combine those three things, those are three games that are all vying for a similar chunk of the games as a service group of people who are willing to try that. I think it's pretty evident, realistically, that Sony is hoping to use that know-how to create games that are looking at people who are willing to act in the same way as that subset of gamers is, but uh, will not be taking away from that. Sony doesn't want to cannibalize Destiny 2 to have this other game. They probably want to realistically have a smaller but avid audience for a Horizon Hunter game. Yep. And that is probably something that's different enough to not steal from their biggest money generators in Destiny and Call of Duty and Apex and Fortnite. 
So, yeah, I see no reason for them to be inherently worried either. Um, if anything, I'd say it's pretty bullish that we know Sony has at least two or three new IP within that. Um, I'm very curious to see whether or not they consider Gran Turismo 7 a game as a service or not. And whether or not they continue, they considered Sport 1, you know? Yeah. I think Drive Club was their effect, was their try. Yeah, realistically, that was a lot closer to that. But um, yeah, I, I'd be curious to see if Sony ever flat out says that this is one of those games as a service titles, more so than what they're probably going to do where they just announce stuff and it's up to us to try and figure out which ones they were looking at and considering as part of their games mm-hmm. as a service push. Uh, but that's okay. Moving on, we have rumors striking again, but this time from a more trustworthy uh, mouth of Jeff Grubb, that PlayStation is aiming to have not one, but two state of plays by the time that June's news period rolls around. It's unclear from what I saw whether or not he's saying that one of them will be um, the big showcase or whatever, like in June. But it seems to me like he's saying that they'll have state of plays and then still a bigger showcase. Um, interesting. Because a lot of people have been trying, like, it sounds like one of them has to be right around the corner. Uh, you would have thought that it would have happened already with PSVR 2 hitting. <laughs> uh, but your other question, like, you know, when would the other one hit? And then does that stop them from doing, does that take away enough steam from them doing a big PlayStation showcase in that same June news era, you know, window that E3 used to carve out, but now Summer Games Fest and whatnot has? Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I think Jeff had clarified later that he thought one of these would happen before February was over. And mm-hmm. one of them would happen in June. So probably okay. the E3 equivalent show. Yeah, that checks out to me for sure. So, all right. Well, that comes up with a question that comes from one of our longtime listeners and patrons, Rude Days 93. He asks, so having the Xbox Direct and the Nintendo Direct and knowing how state of plays are, which type of format do you prefer? The devs talking over gameplay with a few games shown, uh, more akin to what happened with the most recent Xbox showing, or the disembodied voice with mini games shown, which is a little more akin to State of Plays and uh, Nintendo Directs. Do you have a preference, Chris? Yeah, I prefer the Nintendo Direct disembodied ghost voice, and I, that's strictly because we see we get we when I see like the developer Xbox's developer showcase. And I'm like, this is really cool. You're not, you're going to spend most of this time talking about one game. Right. So I like the state of play format of the disembodied voice because I know that it's going to be, here's a trailer, here's a trailer, here's a trailer, here's a trailer, here's a trailer. And that's what I want out of that stuff. I feel like the answer for most people is going to be, the latter, the disembodied voice, because of speed and cadence of announcement. And I think if you're actually doing announcements, that's it. I think Xbox created a really interesting thing that I feel like used to be what uh, the PlayStation experience was, but in a different way. The PlayStation experience's idea of like, well, we're going to let people come into the show floor and you're going to get to talk to developers and spend this time with games that are more aimed at the real PlayStation thing. And some of them might be talked about during our keynote. Some of them might not be. But you can run around and experience these things. I think Xbox is trying to do that within a live streamed show. And I like that. 
Because I do think that there's a subsect of the internet who are interested in having developers talk about their game, give insight into what they're showing and what's being done, playing a more vertical slice where it's not necessarily something that would be cut together for a trailer, but rather a day in the game style thing, <laughs> you know, like a day in the life. But there's a lot of value to that. But there's only a specific group of people who are truly interested in that. And I don't think that works for announcing games. I think that works for talking about games that are already announced, which is most of what Xbox's thing was. Hey, we're going to talk about Redfall. We already know what Redfall is. We already, we've seen it announced. We have an idea. This is where you can get into the nitty gritty of what we're going to talk about it being so that you can decide whether this is a good fit for you. But I don't think that that should be something that most people would want from, say, a you wouldn't want that from E3. You wouldn't want no. that necessarily. Uh, and I, of course, there will be people that would, but the average person wouldn't want that from E3 or the Game Awards. And so yeah. I'm going to go with preferring the latter as well, but there's a time and place for the former of having the developers in and talk to, which is really fun. And it, you don't have to have that be a direct so much as I think that maybe you can have a concerted effort to create those styles of videos for all of your first-party games from our partnered games from Sony and PlayStation and Nintendo, right? Maybe Sony can have a thing where they go through and they announce all these games and they talk about them. And then on the road to release, we start seeing developer diaries on this game. And, hey, we're going to talk about this aspect and that why we think this is cool. And hopefully it gives you extra insight into what our game is and why you would like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be my happy middle ground, you know? Yeah, I, I like the developer stuff. I would just rather see that on its own. Give me a raising Kratos. Don't tell me you're going to show me a game, or don't tell me you're going to do a showcase to show off your games and then spend 20 minutes on one. You know that that's great, but I think that's time and place, and that's just how I feel. So if I'm choosing my preference of what I'd be more excited for, uh, we're doing a first party dev showcase, or we're doing a PlayStation showcase that's constant trailers. I'm I'm taking constant trailers. Yeah, I think there's an excitement that comes with constant trailers. You know, when so whenever I was talking about Sony really owning E3 from like 2015 to 2018, a lot of that came off of the back of them getting out of their own way and just letting their trailers do the talking and setting a rhythm of trailer, trailer, trailer. Little short interstitial where someone comes out and makes some kind of reference or mention towards something and then trailer, trailer. You know, like it was exciting and that's a a real fun way to pull off a showcase. But there is a very good and easy place for, um, hey, let's sit down and talk to these people. Like uh, I really love that PlayStation Experience had these, uh, I can't remember what they called them right now, but basically you just, hey, we're going to have these a group of people come up here and talk about something. Maybe it's developers, maybe it's podcasters who are going to do some kind of, you know, discussion in the middle of this panel what it is um but yeah i I like that idea because you you get to choose to interact with that and of course you get to choose to interact with the main thing but i think announcement uh you know videos like that should be catered to the broad audience and then the smaller more personal we're going to talk to the devs thing should be catered towards the smaller audience that looks for that and uh that'd be cool to see so All right, next thing up, Chris. Sony could be acquiring yet another developer if Reddit rumors are to be believed. User Lackshock seems to believe that Sony potentially acquired or is in the process of doing so the UK-based Ballistic Moon based on job listings that were posted. As of right now, 
The job listings were deleted, which could be indicative of many things, potentially that they were listed in accident. They could have also been that, hey, we want to pull these off so that they're not visible and showing anything we have coming or any number of things. But that's where we are. For anyone who doesn't know, Ballistic Moon was founded in 2019 uh, by devs that formerly were part of Supermassive, so the developers and team behind Until Dawn, and more recently the Dark Pictures Anthology games, as well as some Sony uh, titles for like the PlayLink game that they did um, that I cannot think of the name of right now. Uh, But they had one there, and they of course had some PSVR games like The Impatient. So... I could see Sony buying them as a team that might be able to work towards supporting PSVR 2. But right now, this is strictly speculation based off of a number of questionable things. We'll have to wait and see whether or not this sounds like a move Sony would make. Chris, you have any thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I don't... I think that Reddit rumor got a little out of hand because it listed only first-party studios, but also talked about second party relationships and just happened to list a second party studio being Ballistic Moon. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I think Sony knows they probably whiffed on buying Supermassive when they got the chance. And they did it with Haven already. Um, But to me, I think Deviation is a much more likely pick for this. If they were going to buy one earlier, I think it would be Deviation. So... I think it depends on why they're buying them. Uh, I think if they were buying them to be more of a VR support studio, it makes sense to do them over deviation if that's what they need. Not saying that they do. Um, but deviation makes, I think, more sense on a broad scale. Uh, but you know, both of them are unproven teams, if we're being honest. Oh, uh, for sure. Unproven, unproven to us. Uh, and to some degree, unproven to, by Sony. But as we heard with Haven they prove themselves by working efficiently and diligently and having a pretty killer product beforehand. Sony was impressed enough to not want to lose the opportunity, which says a lot about the current M&A <laughs> landscape yeah. to where there really is that feeling of if there, if you feel like you have something special, there might be more of a reason to jump on it uh, than there may have used to have been. So with all that in mind, uh, yeah, I could see this happening. And I think that there's a a clear way in which there's a path forward for this team to do multiple things. But I feel like them being a VR studio would be the most sensible thing. Yeah. I guess when I look at it to me, deviation, it sounds like they're building a bigger, more important Sony game. Yeah. To me personally. So I, maybe that's it, but, but you know, know. moves for long-term support of, uh, of, upcoming things do make sense having teams like fire sprite was bought in large part because of their ability to work as vr developers Uh, now of course there's other hidden benefits they're a large team but i think that that definitely came into play hey we have we're already working with them they're known for some vr titles and we have a new vr system coming out that we need big titles for so if we buy some people that already have that then we can do that but with that said i would have thought the same of insomniac who had an internal vr team and as of yet we've heard nothing of insomniac working on any vr title uh not for original psvr since their purchase back in 2019 and now not for psvr 2 yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen but it is interesting and may disprove my point to some degree that maybe Sony isn't really too worried about buying for VR support and they'll just find it where they feel like they need it 
And if there's more important fish to fry, they're not going to worry about having a VR a VR team do anything. Uh, I'm still curious. I hold out hope for myself that Insomniac is going to announce some kind of VR title. I hope so. But I, I could be waiting for a long time for that I to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if kind of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if Spider-Man had a VR mode and Wolverine had a VR mode down the line and Ratchet and Clank got one. That seems to be the best. That seems to be what I think Sony is going to end up doing is you guys have a little offshoot team that can go make your bit your your flagship games uh, VR compatible. Well, I think that, that there's some like risk aversion that comes with that too, right? Like a game like Resident Evil 7 is a game that and Resident Evil 8 are games that you can make VR relatively easily, but they still exist as viable products separate from VR. So you get to have your cake and eat it too. They are big pulls for people who want VR, but you still get people who just want to buy it in its 2D version. The only downside of that is I would imagine it's much harder to get an understanding of what drove someone to buy something. And there's more value in knowing that someone bought Resident Evil 7 VR as a standalone VR title because that's what they wanted and it's indicative of what they'd be looking forward in the future to versus people who bought Resident Evil 7 or Resident Evil 8 and then just decided to play the VR version because they already had it. You know, I think that that's... It's beneficial to us, and it's even beneficial to them. But I think it's probably more beneficial to Sony to be able to say, this game is VR only. And here's yeah. how we can see the benefits of that. Like, they have other metrics. <clears throat> I'm sure they'll be able to see how many people played Gran Turismo 7 in VR, and if there's any kind of sales spike that correlates with that increased play of Gran Turismo 7 in VR. But hard to say. You know, yes. I'm all, I would be very interested to just get to one day, have one day to look at what data does Sony pull and look at. Do they go as fine detail as looking to see he's playing Gran Turismo 7 in VR? We've had a recent spike in sales. Does the system go as far as to look to see if the person who's playing it in VR bought it recently? As and And you could therefore correlate that they bought it for VR? You would think that they would. You'd think that it would go that deep, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm overthinking how they actually use their data. I mean, maybe. surely they can tell who's playing VR, but can they really go as far as to look and see if you can reasonably say you bought it for VR? It's a good question. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I think Ballistic Moon would be great to add to the studio. I like the idea, or add to the first party stable. I like the idea of buying up these new studios before they become the big studios and then we're dealing with the FTC and the CMA again. <laughs> That's fair. I think conversely, the only problem is that Sony has in the past not been shy about buying up studios and then closing them when they no longer benefit them, which is understandable, but unfortunate. It's like when you just partner with a team for a long time instead of buying them up immediately, you're essentially, as you have the right to do, putting their fate in your hands <laughs> when you could have partnered with them, still funded the games, and then if you decide you don't want to do the partnership anymore, you can back away while they still exist and have their own future in their own hands. Um, but that's the reality of business. Like we said, art and business seldom go together. But hopefully that doesn't happen to any of these newly acquired things. Like how crazy would it be if Haven gets bought because they're so impressed, the game comes out, underperforms wildly, and then Haven is just closed? That would be You know awful. what I was thinking of? 
while we were talking about this, which might explain the Haven thing, is what if the whole reason they bought them is that is forget forget the game, but the technology, the cloud technology they're working on is going to end up being so valuable. This was just a cheap way to get the patent, basically. <laughs> it's totally possible. And what's worse is that in being possible, it's very easy for Sony to essentially wait until it's all done and working correctly and either considerably scale down Haven if the game doesn't perform or outright close Haven and move people to support the technology that they bought. <laughs> Dude, Matt, how brutal would that be for Jade Raymond to be like, Oh, you finished you finished the cloud computing tech that you've been working on. By the way, your game's canceled and you're fired again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the Haven engine is gonna be great. One I don't think for one second that's what's happening. No, I don't either. It's just it's the realities of business is that it could. Uh, and that's why, you know, with, with everything my, uh, Microsoft's buying, the same reality is always possible. You can look at them and go, oh well, look, they they saved um, you know, uh, what I can't think of the name, Twin, oh, Double Fine, Double Fine Productions. But maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe Double Fine puts out a couple of games that don't perform well enough and they go, eh, it's not really working for us anymore, so you're dead. And then the argument just becomes, would Double Fine have died on their own? It's always a possibility. But if they're dying anyway, it's like, I, it's the what if of it all. It's can you put causation to the fact that they were bought? Like, you know, I, I always think about how unfortunate it was that Visceral closed down after EA bought them. Um, but you think about it this way, it's like, would Visceral have always shut down separate of EA closing them? Like, you know, let's say EA didn't buy them. Visceral was just their own team doing their own thing. And they just made one too many games that didn't perform well enough and they got shut down on their own merits. Is that any different? No. But EA gives you a scapegoat. And when you like a team and you like what they're doing, it's easy to be like, well, they got bought out by EA and then EA closed them. But there is the flip side of, like you said, EA has a much bigger overhead. Mm-hmm. And that means that that the cost needed to justify a studio like that becomes way different than a studio that's independent. Um, so yeah, I hope for the best for all these teams that are getting purchased. <laughs> from anyone, no matter how long they've been around. Uh, I think that people go in and make these studios with very good intentions, and you can only hope that those intentions get to soar for a while before something happens. <laughs> we have to wait and see. Um, all right, we're going to go into rapid-fire news to round out the show uh, before we go into question cleanup for any of the ones we didn't work into the the news section. Uh, so two things. Sony announced that God of War Ragnarok has sold a massive 11 million copies in three months. Very impressive numbers. Puts the God of War series even higher than it already was, and we know it'll continue to climb, much like the original God of War 2018 that broke past 20 million, uh, and maybe even as well past that at this point. Uh, next thing up, new Woe Long demo is being released on PC and console later this month. Saves will transfer to the full title when it releases later this year, which is looking good for very serious lack of chance that there will be any delay to further hit Chris's, um, you know, to have any negative impact, I should say, on Chris's <laughs> Metacritic draft. Yeah, my Metacritic draft is looking sexy so far. It's looking pretty good so far. I'll give you that. Yours is looking a little bad. 
I've had a I've had a handful of good games, but that zero initially is what got me. It's the zero and the sixty six is just a brutal. Oh, I know the sixty six doesn't help, but the sixty six is much less of a hit in the face of like an eighty eight and a ninety something or whatever it is. That I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Let me so, see. Let me see. Let me see. So while Chris is looking at that, we're going to go ahead and move in to the questions. So as you know, you can ask us questions. We do question collection for every episode. You can either ask us questions that are random and about anything you want, gaming, non-gaming. Uh, and we may or may not read them if we think they're good and fun. Uh, or you can, or in general, you, you can reach out to us, ask questions that you want. Uh, and we will answer them as we see fit. If we don't get to them and work them into topics that we're discussing, the other thing, we try and get to them as many as we'd like at the end of the episode. So with that in mind, we have Kiki, one of the longest listeners of this show. Cope, you're doing well, Kiki. Uh, he says, this is more for Brett because Chris is a bitch with me, just so you know, and doesn't like Kingdom Hearts. Do you think they should have made a console version for the upcoming Kingdom Hearts Missing Link since it basically looks like Kingdom Hearts 0.2? And what worlds would you like to see in Kingdom Hearts 4? Now, Chris, I know you don't really have much input on the first one, but since Kingdom Hearts 4 is a completely vague thing that none of us know about i'd like to hear your answers for that because i'd like to hear what you think would make you like kingdom hearts more if you had the ability to choose what worlds you get to see within that uh but as far as my answers um yeah i i think at this point uh there's been enough jokes made about kingdom hearts uh being trifurcated quadricated whatever you want to call it it's out on enough different systems and it's hard enough to follow that there's no real reason in my mind that you couldn't made a console version for this. I know the reason is just to have a phone exclusive thing where you have to do it on a phone and you can break into that market. Uh, but it does look a lot like 0.2 uh, in terms of graphical performance and typical things. So I would have liked to see this get some kind of console treatment just because it's that much easier to follow. Um, and as much as you and I have talked many times about Union Cross, the previous mobile game, I think we all know that it was a completely average mobile game. It was kind of fun at times. It dragged on too much, but it had a killer story. If the same ends up being true of Missing Link, then I guess it being on consoles doesn't really change much. My real hope is that it just at least has a really cool story and has big impact and uh, implications for the series moving forward. Um, but Chris, I'm going to take a break from my answers for what I'd like to see worldwide in Kingdom Hearts 4. And I'd love to hear if there's something now that we have a much broader, potentially broader uh, pool of things to choose from. Are there worlds that you feel like would make you like Kingdom Hearts 4 more? Definitely since we know Kingdom Hearts has the opportunity to make big changes to the gameplay formula. Uh, and is there gameplay changes you'd like to see in conjunction with the worlds that you think might make you interested enough to try Kingdom Hearts 4? I mean, the thing for me is Kingdom Hearts 4 has the problem of me not playing any of the other 87 games. Yep. Um, that's an issue. I mean, I would be in maybe like give me an Aladdin world, a Lion King world. Disney owns, you know, Fox now, so maybe give me like a Grandma's Boy World. Um, you you know, with Dante. Hell yeah, yeah, bra. Um, <laughs> the Doctor. 
<laughs> I'm not doing that impression. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, Kingdom Hearts, like, I want to play it. I know that I think on this show, I bought the, the pack. I have it here. It's installed. You did. Um, it's just a lot of game to play. All Chris, I have great news for you. Oh, God, what? There is an Aladdin world. Oh. Yep. Is there a Grammar There's an Aladdin world? world. No, but there is well. also a Lion King world in Kingdom Hearts 2. Oh, okay. And it's really fun, actually. Proud Rock. Um, it, it's it's a pretty cool world. And Sora, hold on. If if you've never seen this, Chris, I want to, I want to see your reaction or hear your reaction at the very least. Google... Sora, Kingdom Hearts 2, Lion King. Yeah. And I want you to look at my boy. Because one of the things that's really fun about Kingdom Hearts is their willingness to just really push how they present Sora depending on what worlds he goes to. Uh, And some of them push a lot further than others. Some of them are fun and kind of innocuous, like him having a Halloween costume on in Halloween World. And some of them are him being... A mermaid in the Little Mermaid, so or he's a lion. being a fucking lion cub with a keyblade in his mouth. I don't know if you're seeing gameplay or just a picture. So my man picture. holds the keyblade in his mouth, and you fight and swing your whole body and head, and it is amazing. It is right. so fun. I'll play it. Fine, and Leave it's a sick design. Tell me that Sora Lion Cub does not look cool. No, it's he a does. solid. It's a solid design. Uh, I said I'll play the game. I'll do it. You don't have to play the game, but there no, you are. I'll play, I'll play the game. I'll get the Platinums and all of them. And then I'll be like, these games still suck. Leave me alone. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't <laughs> yell at me. <laughs> oh, Kiki's burning up inside. I'm real iffy on what I want from Kingdom Hearts 4. I have long, even Kingdom Hearts 3, I was really worried that they would not be able to resist the urge to want to put Marvel in. And I don't want to say that Marvel in Kingdom Hearts is inherently bad. I don't want to. I just... Kingdom Hearts is at a point where it can make a big identity change. And, you know, you talked about Chris not playing any of the other ones. There is a really high chance that Kingdom Hearts 4 will act as a very easy jumping on point. Because while there is implications that happened from the last game, almost every bit of the of the previous story threads was wrapped up in the last game. Some new ones were opened, but they don't really correlate to much from the original games. It's a, it's a new idea. So you can learn what you need to learn about the Master of Masters, probably within the context of Kingdom Hearts 4 by itself. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. What are you laughing about? You're laughing about the name Master of Masters? No, I'm watching him <laughs> fight with the keyblade in his mouth. It's awesome. It's, and yeah. cute. I mean, it's it's awesome. This is yeah, good music. Anyway, <laughs> that was the thing I saw I'll, I'll, right here. I'll, there I'll they are, Kiki. It. You can see it. Look, we'll we'll end the show with me putting it into my PlayStation and installing it. <laughs> well, the worlds I think I'd like to see is I would like to see them stretch a little further. Really, my answer is that I would like to see them disassociate themselves from from the Disney side of things a little bit more and feel like they have more freedom to introduce more original worlds while still keeping a little bit of that Kingdom Hearts magic you expect of that crossover stuff. But I think that there's enough... I think it's matured enough and enough has happened that there's no reason that they can't try and straddle that line a little bit better. And they've always had original worlds, 
but I would like to see them kind of push a little more towards focusing on building out their original worlds and uh, letting some of the other things go. The real question I think that comes in when you play between like Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 and the way they're set up versus 3 is that 3 has less worlds realistically than the other games, but the other games, the worlds aren't necessarily as in depth, which is not necessarily a positive or a negative. It depends on the world. It depends on the game. Um, So, I know it's not a great answer, Kiki, but my real hope is that while we see them apparently going Star Wars, I'm going to be honest with you right now, I do not know how I feel about Star Wars and Kingdom Hearts and having together, but I ended up really liking Tron both times they did it with Kingdom Hearts 2 and Dream Drop. Uh, I thought actually uh, that the Tron Legacy world was incredibly cool. I thought that, and it worked surprisingly well. And they also proved me wrong by having the Kingdom Hearts 2 Pirates of the Caribbean is okay. I thought the Kingdom Hearts the Three Pirates of the Caribbean was a lot of fun, and I didn't expect to have that much fun with it. So there's a chance they could prove me wrong. Uh, if I think about... I don't want to see them go back to worlds we've already explored way too much, and I don't think it would make sense from the lore uh, things of what they've got going on now. With them being in this odd change-up for Sora... I would really like to see them go a little more off cuff and do things that aren't immediately obvious, whether that be more Pixar stuff or finding a way like this is going to sound real wild because as far as I know, I don't think that this is the case anymore. Disney at one point in time owned the publishing or whatever rights for all of the, uh, what was, I mean, all of the studio Ghibli stuff. I think it'd be really cool if there was a way for, us to get Ghibli worlds as Dude. part of this weird shakeup. And all it is is Sora going through like Princess Mononoke and House Moving Castle worlds Dude. and Spirited Away. I'm not saying it can happen. I'm 99% sure that it can't. But man, would that be cool. I would play Kingdom Hearts if it was Kingdom, if it was Sora as a dragon, like in, in Spirited Away. That would 10 out of 10 stuff. I'm in. I'm in. Well, I think that'd be fun too, right? Seeing how Sora, his visuals change to fit into each world. I think, oh man, <laughs> I was thinking of uh, Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> having, <laughs> having, having a Grave of the Fireflies world. That would be... You should see a scene and it's Sora, Goofy, and Mickey inside one of the fucking bomber jets. <laughs> that is... Uh, Holy shit. That would be interesting. I think that that's the biggest thing that they have to contend with is that the, I feel like everyone has this expectation that Donald and Goofy are going to be there. And I think the game clearly says that even with the uh, Kingdom Hearts reminded DLC for three, it hints at, and, and, and actually the trailer for Kingdom Hearts four hints at um, Donald and Goofy still being there, but Donald and Goofy do represent a weight around source creative or the creative abilities to do more surprising things with the worlds with Kingdom Hearts because of the fact that they are inherently cartoonish. And that means you always have to contend with them being in the worlds. It can be done. And I love Donald and Goofy and I love their interactions with Sora. So it's not a complaint, but it, it does come with a challenge and that you will always have to work around them being involved in these challenges. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I'm curious to see too. Kiki, I want to see what worlds you're looking for and which ones you're excited for. But moving on to the remainder of the questions, we got two more. Jehudi MD, another question from him. He says, a bit off gaming. If you were born in the Game of Thrones era, where would you want to be born? Winterfell, North of the Wall, High Garden, King's Landing? I think um, the answer I'm going to choose to give here is I'd like to be born in High Rothgar. And I'm well aware that that has nothing to do with Game of Thrones. But that's also because, unfortunately, (laughs) maybe for you, I've not watched anything outside of season one of Game of Thrones back when it, you know, when season two and three were just coming out. Um, I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I have no input. I don't even know how to answer the question. Chris, have at thee. Um, I would say Winterfell because I think those are the toughest people in the show. So is this idea kind of like, are these the four areas that house the like house the four houses? Yeah, is it kind much. of like that? Okay, I know that much. <laughs> I know that there's four houses, <laughs> and I kind of figured that there was lands tied to each one of them. You got it right. Look at that. Okay, I don't have much to say, uh, but you can berate me into trying to get me to watch Game of Thrones. Chris has tried, and it's yet to happen. Uh, my coworker Mario has tried. Has yet to happen. It's not a no. I just don't know when I would have the uh, motivation to do it. I'll say that much. It doesn't help that, from what I understand, the last season is almost universally hated. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to want to go into something where it's like, oh yeah, it's great all the way until the end, and then it sucks, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, what fun. The rest of it, it's still <laughs> worth it. Just do it. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe I can convince my wife. If she would, then it's easier because then we can do it as something we do together. That's the harder part. You know, like most of what I watch on TV is when I'm watching with her. Like the only thing I really can think of that I've watched recently that didn't involve her um, is uh, the new season of um, The Dragon Prince. That's like the only thing I've watched. And they're 28 minute episodes. So it's not really hard to squeeze in. I'll do it on like lunch or something. But (laughs) Game of Thrones is a little harder to squeeze in on lunch. Yes. Being honest. I would agree with that. All right. Last question and a hard question, Chris. Oh, boy. I don't know if I even have an answer. If you had to have the hairstyle of a video game character for a year, who would you choose? And to make it more interesting, you can't choose a human or humanoid character. That question comes courtesy of our patron, Velvet Thunder. What are your thoughts here? Um. Wow. Uh, I would want the hair of Sora as a lion cub. (laughs) That's actually a really good (laughs) answer because his hair is so spunky and cool. Yeah, he's got good hair. And I know it really only works within the the confine of of a lion's mane, but it's still really cool. What I always liked about it is I know you didn't play a whole lot of – (laughs) <laughs> you didn't play a whole lot of Final Fantasy VII. It's the one you've played the most of. Um, but did you get to where they introduced Red Thirteen? Yeah. No. Yeah. The dog. Yeah. yeah Sora kind of looks like Red Thirteen in this line cub form. He and does. considering that Tetsuya Nomura does the design work for them, it's not really that surprising. But he always gave me Red Thirteen vibes. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, which I guess to that end, I can kind of cheat and say. Red Give me Red 13. 
yeah, let me see. I, I want to look at one of the newer ones. Yeah, he looks super cool. He kind of has, speaking of Lion King, he's kind of got like the hyena hair from the original Lion King movies. You know? So that's yeah, interesting. A bit. Sora a little less, but you know, I get my red 13 vibes considering what they are. Now, <laughs> Aztec King, one of our other patrons, he said Jorman Gunder. He's like, I could rock a bald do for a while. <laughs> that's kind of a good cheat code. Cause I mean, if I could totally just say Jorman Gunder as well, I won't. Trying to think through what I think wow. would be cool hair. Give me, give me Roach from uh, from The Witcher Three. Roach, or maybe maybe Shadowmere from from the Elder Scrolls series, because he's a little bit more distinct looking than just a normal ass horse. Ever being honest. <laughs> oh, you know what? I've got it. Okay, I've got it. Sly Cooper. Ooh, just the hat. Well, the hat is a good one. And you don't ever really see him without the hat. So instead, I'm going to go with Carmelita Fox's hair. Because my girl's got hair for days. And she's a fox. Well, she's a humanoid, though. See, that's where we're breaking it off. He says it's got to be harder because it can't be a humanoid character. And so your answer works because it's like a dog. <laughs> it's like a lion body. It's a lion cub. So Red 13 works. Yorman Gunder works. But I don't think you could or I don't think you'd reasonably say Carmelita because she is a humanoid anthrop- anthropomorphized fox. So I, I think I have the right answer. And the right answer is whichever hair I choose for my horse in Red Dead 2. Because <laughs> I could have a mohawk, I could have dreadlocks, I could have just straight hair. It's perfect. It's just hair, but it's on a horse. Horse is not humanoid. Therefore, I've answered the question. Bam. Logic. I mean, I think you've got it. I wish I could come up with just some really great answer for this, but it's just a hard, hard question. I'm glad I was able to give you an answer because, I mean, I think Sora as a lion cub is a great answer. Wait, are the things from Animal Crossing, are those aren't humanoid, are they? I would consider them to be humanoid. They're would you? Two legs, two arms, upright walking with human, more humanoid is, uh, is, proportions. Is, is Conquer humanoid? Yeah. If, uh, at least in the sense of if you consider uh, if you consider Sly Cooper humanoid, I think Conquer comes into play there too. You know what I mean? But then. The hard problem is that most video game characters are humanoid. Well, yeah. So the, I don't then, really know why, but then, that's how it, that's how it works out. Then the question just becomes, what animal do you want to look like? Right? So then if we're going to go super deep into it, the only real answer is any lion in any video game because it has a beard and a full head of hair. So like that feels like the right answer. Yeah. It's like even if you look at like Earthworm Jim. It's like yeah. it's not an answer. He's a humanoid worm because he's he's given that. I guess, and you know what? I may be misrepresenting his question, but his exact wording is to make it more interesting. You can't choose a human or humanoid character. Yeah, I I'm just I don't know. So where we have to define the line of humanoid? 
pretty well. Because like another good answer, I don't know if you've ever played any of the Klonoa games. The little black and white dude who wears the hat. He's got long ears that come down like little spikes. Klonoa is really cool. I think his hair, or essentially his ears, which act as elongated hair, look great. But I'm pretty sure you'd consider him humanoid. He walks around on uprights, you know what I mean? He'd have to be humanoid. If all these other things are humanoid, then Earthworm... Jim has to be so does Klonoa. If Earth, if if an earthworm can be humanoid, then all of them can be humanoid, <laughs> and then the answer the answer just becomes which animal main you want. And I feel like lion becomes the answer, other than Red Dead Horse because Red Dead Horse has customizable hairstyles. Yeah, well, see, that's the problem. Like, if you go humanoid, I mean, have you ever played StarCraft at all? A little bit, yeah. Okay, Kerrigan, the big bad. Does have she's cool hair. as shit, but I would be really hard pressed not to call her humanoid. She is humanoid. That's what I'm saying. So it's like she's not human, but she's too close to be humanoid. So the real question is whether or not anthropomorphized animals are right. or are not. So I'm, I don't know. I think I'm gonna have to just uh, I'm gonna have to stick with something non. So uh, Chris, I like your answer. You really worked out. Crash Bandicoot, unfortunately, is going to be not listed, and I love Crash and his little weird mohawk. Hair. I have to, I have to push back. Crash Bandicoot, I don't think it's humanoid. That's just a Bandicoot. Why is he not humanoid? Just out of curiosity. Why is he humanoid? Because he's got pants on. Bandicoots don't stand up on their. I can put, I can put pants on my dog. He could. Would it be humanoid he, if my dog was wearing pants? He, well, if would I, your if, dog's, if, if I would your dog's upstairs, legs be proportioned like a human's, where they're you know they completely go straight down from your hip, and your arms work in the same way that humans do, and he walks on on two legs? You know that's, that's that's the question. Like Crash moves like a human; he has two upright legs, and Bandicoots are not upright creatures. Okay, is the rabbit like from Sly Cooper? Fist, is that is you that humanoid? No, <laughs> yeah. it's not. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's a question for Velvet Thunder. <laughs> That's really it. I don't think this has to be solved, Brett. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, it does need to be solved. I just think the problem is, is that everybody, designers are so quick to humanize anything. You make them humanoid to some degree. The only time that I feel like you see non-humanoid things are when they're like monsters. So, you know, say like Leviathan from Dead Space. Is <laughs> that that sounds like a non-answer? Because most creatureous things don't ha- that don't have a human shape to them don't even bother having hair, right? That's the that's the problem with restricting it to animals is because at that point I just have whatever hair is on the animal, and that shouldn't count either. <laughs> Some bullshit. Because <laughs> is it even a hairstyle at that point? Right. All right, Chris. Now the big question is: What would we like to give these lovely people as a community state question? Um, I mean, I think we had the biggest conversation what about... Is, what is humanoid? Yeah. No, yeah. What is a humanoid? No. Um, I want to hear about how you feel about live service games. Do you think all these closings are a sign of what's to come? Or is it just opening up space for the new breed of live service? <clears throat> That's actually a good way to say it. Is this just... Is this just like the the rolling over? Like, yeah, I don't know if they have this where you're from. Like, our local water supply every now and then they turn the water over, and you can taste it in the local water supply for like a few days. So then it, it tastes a little odd because all the stuff that was at the bottom kind of they pull up so that the water gets 
to where it doesn't get worse, so where you don't have continually staling water. Um, it's kind of like that, right? It's, it's, it's just games that are going and making way for the next generation of this type of game. It doesn't mean that they failed along the way. Some of them did, some of them didn't. They've reached their end of life and the next one's going. Is that how you view it, or do you view these as overt failures? Mm, that's a, it's a good question. I think we'll really get a feel for our audience and how much of them are geared towards this type of game versus which ones are geared more towards single player. Because I think the answer is going to change a lot depending on the type of gamer you are. (laughs) If you don't interact with games as a service, I feel like you might be a little more uh, liberal in letting them be like, well, it was probably a success. Whereas if you're very heavily into games as a service, one failing like that just feels like, ah, look, they couldn't even survive as long as this game did. You know what I mean? So interesting comparison points. Well, Chris, thank you for joining me. Uh, We'll have to uh, have a little fun in the editing after this, getting rid of some of the weird parts. But you know what? That's the nature of doing a show across. What do we have between us? Like 12 states? About that. 14 states? Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. So with all that in mind, Chris, thank you for joining me. This has been episode 294 of Triangle Squared. And we'd like to shout out and remind you once again that we have such lovely patrons who went over to patreon.com slash nartech and gave as little as a dollar per month, just like our newest patron, Spencer. Big shout out to you, Spencer. We are glad that you saw saw the show as something you thought you should uh, give a little extra to and wanted to support. We appreciate that. And we hope that that support you feel like is earned. We'll do everything we can to keep that going. But without further ado, I'm going to wrap this show up and give another shout out to our other patrons, Brandon Edwards, Alex, Barry Rogers, Stingray X, It's a Sin to Win, a.k.a. Sean, Aztec King, Leechion69, The Lord Corgi, Salvador Garcia, Hammond Egger, Bailey Robertson, Mark Schutz, Cypher Primus, Kyle Grimm, Rude Days 93, Kevin Bacon Bits, Christopher, Danny Villalobos, Jehudi MD, No Fate, Josh Ayers, Derek Porter, Donovan Williams, Constantly Kenny, Matthew Green, and Sean Sanderud. If you would like to join them, once again, head over to patreon.com slash nartech. Give us a little dollar per month. Otherwise, we appreciate you for giving us your time each week and just listening in. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Can you hear it? Can you hear them calling? It's happening. Warsh. Tell me about my wiener. (laughs) 